performers were important only because they've made one important record. Afterwards and before, they're in oblivion for the most part. But I don't predict that kind of future for the next two people I'm going to introduce. They have a number of popular records, very, very good ones, but they're good singers and fine fellows. Simon and Garfunkel. There are times when I'm singing one of Paul's songs that I feel the song is really very personal and probably shouldn't be sung by anyone other than the writer. But there are other songs that go beyond one person. Hello, darkness, my old friend. There always seemed to have been some resentment between the two of them ever since the beginning. That should have been a red flag, but both of them chose to ignore it. According to their manager, Mort Lewis, Paul often thought the audience saw Artie as the star because he was the featured singer. And Artie knew Paul wrote the songs and thus controlled the future of the pair. Do you find the need to bounce musical ideas off somebody? Because I mean, obviously, I don't know how you used to work with Artie Garfunkel, whether you did do that, how close a part writing partnership it actually was. Well, we were in a writing partnership. We didn't, I didn't, we didn't write together. It was always your song, his song, your no, song. No, he never, he didn't write any of this. <laughs> he didn't write any, I don't mean that. That's real funny. He didn't write any of this. I wrote all the songs, oh. Garfunkel songs. Yeah. I gotta say this, is Garfunkel sore or what is it? Is he sore at me? Yeah, he's... You're no, it's a matter of fact, he's uh, spending his time these days on a farm in Scotland. But you're, you're still in touch, I mean, there's no... There's no problem, I assume. Well. Uh, on his own, Art Garfunkel was too syrupy. It's too sweet. I had a, a hit outside America that was huge in England and Europe and in, and in uh, Japan called Bright Eyes. That's a, it's a very touching lyric. I get a lot of feedback when I'm not in this country. Did Art Garfunkel ever get on your nerves? <laughs> oh, he always gets on my nerves. He's a very unusual guy <laughs> who sings very well. That first album of 1964 to 5, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., which had the sound of silence in it, was not happening. And Paul went off to England and was a folk singer, and I went back to college where I was an architecture student uptown at Columbia. Winner of the record of the year is... Garfunkel for Mrs. Robinson. Uh, the problem was, Paul was ready with the next batch before Mike Nichols was ready to release me from Guaymas, Mexico. So that's what made Paul for the first time feel, I have to wait for Artie? Which, of course, is an unheard of thing. Tom, get your plane right on time. Welcome to episode 29 of CFX entitled Simon and Garfunkel. And you heard Paul Simon really talking about, uh, you know, Artie Garfunkel and Artie Garfunkel talking about Paul Simon. They have an interesting and complex relationship, uh, which we'll certainly get into in this uh, episode. But welcome to episode 29 uh, CFX. This is where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, music, today and movies and TV and books and stage and screen and all of it. 
Uh, we evaluate the context at the time they came out, what's happened since, our take on their future valuation in terms of should you go long, should you go short, uh, be neutral. And that's kind of what we do here. So Simon and Garfunkel, Artie Garfunkel mentioning that he had a, a big hit uh, outside of the country um, in places like Japan called, called Bright Eyes. You had a big hit in Japan too, slept in you with Tanpo, the tent song. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, that's a whole different episode. I don't know when we're going to talk about that. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's kind of a different right. episode. That's like maybe camping stories or something, which we already could actually, I could have brought that up during the meatballs episode, but dude, let's talk about this. Why the hell did you want to do this? Simon and like Garfunkel? Now, what, yeah, what kicked this off? Were you just like, uh, did you did you guys go see Simon and Garfunkel story or no, something? I like like I, I was wh- why did you? I was you, listening yeah. to Simon and Garfunkel, uh, and I thought it would. I was listening to Paul Simon, and I was listening to Simon and Garfunkel, and I thought that you know that it was he has an interesting story arc in his career. Um, yeah, and in rather than just tackle Paul Simon himself. Uh, which we could do. I, I mean, obviously, his solo career is much more expansive and longer than his uh, partnership with Garfunkel. But I just thought it'd be interesting to look back at, you know, we do a lot of 70s stuff, uh, obviously, and we've done 80s stuff. And we really haven't tackled any 60s stuff other than the Beach Boys, right? Which uh, obviously... Oh, well, the 60s. Doors. Oh, the Doors, yeah. No, we did two big 60s ones, right? The Beach Boys and the, the Doors, doors, doors. But, you know, obviously, the 70s this is... A... too, right? Uh, not really. Early 70s, I mean, like I mean, Simon and Garfunkel. Like early. 70, se- 71, really. Yeah. And Simon and Garfunkel's barely like 70, right? Yeah. The Beach Boys are the one that's more, right? Even though they, you know, didn't really do anything that great, um, you know. But they they were more the 70s, if you think about it, because Endless Summer is what we did. And that came out in 74, even though it was a, their old stuff. That's when they kind of were at one of their most you know, largest things. Of course, Simon and Garfunkel, you could argue too, in the early eighties and the doors in the early eighties had a, like a little bit of a revival. So yeah. that's kind of, I think that's why it touches our childhood so much. Cause even though, you know, Simon and Garfunkel's heyday was before we were, well, I was when I was born and before you were born. Yep. So um, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but I wondered this cause I almost wondered because I, when I first thought of this, when you brought this up, I thought, oh, how fucking boring. You know, this is going to be the most boring thing ever. This kind of old sleepy 60s rock. I think this is just Jeff getting back at me for making him listen to all that fucking Donna yeah, Summer. You partly, know? yeah. But, but I was wrong. Okay, yeah. I'm here to say I was wrong. This was actually amazing to do. Um, and uh, made me have new respect, especially for Paul Simon, but a bit for Garfunkel, which we'll talk about. Um, well, you know, I've. Here, here's what I can tell you about that. I mean, I'll, I'll do my personal history first because it touches on exactly what you just talked about, which is my exposure to Simon and Garfunkel's was Simon and Garfunkel was in the '80s, in the early '80s, around that Central Park concert, right? Right. And so I remember when I was, you know, so you never heard the Paul Simon AM Gold? Like, I might uh, have, but it, it never really. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't make an it impression. Didn't make an impression. Yeah. I certainly had heard Sounds of Silence, and you know probably America and, you know, their, their biggest hits, of course, I no doubt heard them. I didn't know if I, it really resonated with me as, oh, this is Simon and Garfunkel or them as a thing until that 1981 concert in Central Park, which um, I saw, 
not live, but I, I it was broadcast, I think, on HBO or something like that very early on. And I actually saw it. I don't think I saw it when it was first broadcast, but reruns of it on HBO at a friend's of my parents' house. And I really liked it. And I had a, a friend whose parents had the album. It, it, that, that concert came out on as a double album. Um, and I liked it. And I eventually got that uh, same uh, album. It was on tape, I think, at that point. Um, and I liked it. And I really liked uh, the whole show. And I, I was into it. Um, for whatever reason, their music uh, really resonated with me, with uh, one glaring example, actually, that Art Garfunkel's song that they sung a heart in New York or a heart in New York, whatever it was. I thought that was complete garbage. I skipped it every time. Still do, by the way. Uh, but I liked it. And it's probably one of the first times I heard the name really called out of Steve Gadd because he played on that live uh, concert. And uh, he, on after uh, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, uh, Paul Simon actually name-checked him uh, directly in that in that concert. So that was... That was a, a big, you know, that made it a big impression on me as a kid. And I have been a, a fan ever since. We'll, we'll see if that holds up. But I did also get a, um, a CD compilation that had pretty much every song on their albums all in one uh, CD compilation. I never owned all their albums individually, but I owned uh, that compilation. So why don't you uh, go into your uh, personal history? Yeah. So my impression of them has always been kind of, it's funny that you said in college, because to me, this is like ultimate college freshman music. It's like the music where, you know, especially something like a dangling conversation where they're talking about Robert Frost and Emily Dickinson. It's yeah. like so pretentious. It's so perfect for college dorm room music. And, and, um, I just always thought they were kind of square, yeah. you know, growing up, uh, like I read a lot of the critics, Rolling Stone. Now, obviously the critics love Paul Simon, um, you know, for good reason as a songwriter, but they also talked about how Simon and Garfunkel, like this critic, Dave Marsh, who I worshiped as a kid, who now I kind of laugh at some of his stupid reviews. Um, some of which I agree with some of which I don't, but he basically said they bridged the generation gap. And I think they did this even more than the Beatles at the beginning. I think the Beatles really only bridged the generation gap with Sergeant Pepper. Mm. I think at the time the the Beatles were considered more radical because of their hair and because of the mania they inspired. But Simon and Garfunkel were almost easy listening, and I think I think um, the parents of kids definitely liked them. And to me, this always meant they kind of weren't legit. Now, this is I'm not saying this is how I feel now. This is how I felt coming into okay. this. You know, I kind of felt like. Yeah, Paul Simon did some interesting things in his solo career, and Simon and Garfunkel do have some legit all-time great songs that you can't argue with the quality of the songwriting and of course the singing but coming into it I just like oh they're so boring they're so square you know compared to like something like the Beatles or Bob Dylan or something like that so that was kind of what I was coming into with with this but my history goes back mainly to Paul Simon I the the songs I remember hearing as a kid the first songs were not Simon and Garfunkel you know, I may have heard Mrs. Robinson in some oldies radio show or a station or something like that. But when I was growing up as a little kid, Paul Simon was contemporary. Right. He wasn't oldie, right? So you had hits like Kodachrome, a song I still absolutely love. I kind of, I love, and I think we'll agree on this. I love when Paul Simon actually writes like a kind of beatly pop song. He really does that really well. And he, it's more of a kind of beat. It sounds almost like George Harrison, like would write this, you know, it's, it's, um, 
really catchy, really melodic. I remember hearing that as a really little kid. You mentioned 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. I love this as a kid too. And I almost felt like this was a song. I always talk about this in different episodes. These songs that were almost like kids songs because they're so sing-alongable and they have such quirky lyrics, like American Pie, even though it's kind of this allegory of rock history, you know, the the whole Chevy to the levee thing and, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And I think 50 ways to your, to leave your lover with, you know, get on the, get on the track, Jack, or back on the track, Jack, or whatever. Um, You know, those little kid rhymes, it was so, you know, just irresistible to me. And as you mentioned, Steve Gadd, I mean, everyone talks about his drumming on Asia, but this might be my favorite Steve Gadd contribution because it just makes the song, this this kind of militaristic kind of drum thing he does. I don't think the song would be it the way it is without Gadd. I mean, it's an amazing drum composition, Um, not to mention the technical prowess it probably takes to play, you know, with all those little drum rolls. And and of course, Slip Sliding Away, you know, that was on his greatest hits album in what, 77 or whatever. That was irresistible to me too. Um, So I remember first hearing that. And then the other thing I remember hearing, of course, was what what we talked about at the beginning with the clips about Bright Eyes. Bright Eyes was the kind of theme song to a movie called Watership Down, which is a really terrifying kids cartoon about rabbits, which we'll have to do at some point because I this movie was huge for me. I actually even wrote a college paper in one of my classes on this book hmm. because I loved it. I loved the book and the film. But yeah, the melancholy theme is, is Bright Eyes by, uh, by Art Solo, right? And then, of course, I remember Paul Simon from Saturday Night Live. I mean, he's one of the, I think, along with Steve Martin and a few other uh, people, he's hosted the show more than anybody else. Yeah, I think John because he was really there too. But yeah, right, he was really close with uh, Lorne Michaels. Right. They were really close friends. I mean, Lorne was a fan, and then they became friends. And then, of course, he's in Annie Hall as well. So you know, we talk about. I'll talk about Art Garfunkel's acting in a minute, but. Um, Art Garfunkel definitely had more of an acting career, but Paul Simon had a little bit. And of course, he made a really um, movie that I've never seen uh, called One Trick Pony that's really supposed to be quite terrible. Um, But it did have another song I loved at the time called Late in the Evening, which was totally AM Gold for me. You know, around that same time we talked about on our AM Gold episode, 77 to 79, this fits right in there. Well, one of the things I was just going to say about the Central Park concert is it features a lot of his biggest solo hits, too. So that's where I was exposed to a lot of his uh, 70 solo hits, because all the ones you mentioned, uh, Kodachrome, 50 Ways, Slip Sliding Away, um, all those were on that Central Park album that, you know, they they did uh, his solo work a lot, too, right? Right. And then going forward in history, obviously, we have the um, Central Park concert. And I remember this was just a huge deal for my parents. You know, it was just it just didn't resonate with me. I just didn't care about them. Like to me that it was too easy listening. I would I would see their albums in the thrift shop like Parsley, Sage, Rosemary and Thyme, like next to like, you know, sing along with Mitch. And to me, this was like old dad, old parents music, like the Carpenters and Square shit like that, even though it really isn't. That was my perception. It just wasn't cool to yeah. me. You know, I was tr- I was getting into the doors and Pink Floyd and stuff like that. And I could just give a shit about this stuff, you know. But when Graceland came out, I did take note because, again, as I as I told you, many, many episodes or as we've discussed on many episodes, I love the fucking critics. And of course, this was a majorly critically acclaimed album. It was a complete landmark. Um, you know, this whole world music thing was explored by other artists that I admired, like Peter Gabriel. 
But Paul Simon had done it in a way that was just completely revolutionary. And my dad, my stepdad had this album. And, you know, I didn't love They Call Me Al and that stuff, but I read the lyrics in the cassette had the lyrics and I was blown away by his lyrics. I think as, as a lyricist, he's up there with the best of them. Like I could like boy in the bubble. I just thought it was like ingenious because I was writing my own poetry at the shitty, you know, teenage poetry at the time, trying to be little baby Jim Morrison or whatever. And I read this and I just thought Paul Simon's lyrics are amazing. You know, I just thought these were brilliant. Um, and I still admire that album. You know, I'll talk about that a little bit later. We, you know, that could have its own show. It's, it's kind of resonated over the years in a way, even though it, was controversial at the time because of his use of uh kind of he was um going against the um the ANC's boycott of westerners uh doing business in South Africa even though he was paying the musicians a lot and there's there you know there's people who are still mad about, about at him about this and there are other people who realize that you know maybe he did a good thing by doing this um and i remember in college so in college again i was still kind of you know, I was, I was kind of respected this, but kind of was still on the fence of whether it was cool. And I remember saying something about, you know, I was always bitter and angry when I was young and I was always criticizing stuff just out of rage. And I remember our friend, our mutual friend, Adam, at the time, we got into this argument because I'm just like, Simon and Garfunkel sucks, you know, just out of nowhere just attacking something. And he's just like, what have you done, man? <laughs> you know, he got really, it's so funny. What have you ever done? Is that, isn't that um, the guy who had um, poison ivy on his junk? Yeah, that's okay. right. He, he, on a crazed Halloween night, he went rolling around in San, in, you know, cause he went to school with us. He went out into the wilderness and rolled around in the, in the weeds, all drunk or stoned or something. And he got poisoned. He, he, it was funny because he got poison ivy and then he went to the clinic. He's like, I got poison ivy. You got our poison oak. We don't get poison ivy is like East yeah. Coast. Poison oak is what we get here. Poison oak in California. So po he's like, I have poison oak. And they're like, well, just wait in line. He's all, it's on my dick. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how it got yeah. there. Um, yeah. At any rate, um, so at any rate, so the next the next little bit about Simon and Garfunkel. So again, I didn't really think about them, think much of them or whatever. I I'll, I will say during high school, I was got, getting into film. I was really into Hitchcock and I watched a lot of classic critically acclaimed films. Of course, I watched The Graduate and I thought the use of the music of Simon and Garfunkel's music was amazing. You know, I just thought it was one of the best uses of music in a movie. And it, it really did. You know, it was really something unique where you had this one artist doing all of the music for the film and it gives it this vibe that I just don't think it would have without it. You know, and obviously there's Mrs. Robinson, which is an incredible song um, that was written, you know, and tailored to the movie. It wasn't written specifically for the movie. It was actually a different title, which we'll talk about in the history, but it was tailored to the movie and the lyrics were tailored to the movie. And it's just such a great theme song. And then of course it influenced another one of my favorite movies, Harold and Maude, which used the music of Cat Stevens in a similar yeah. way. I think I don't think it, they would have done that had the graduate not done it first with Simon and Garfunkel. And as we'll talk about in the history, this was a major thing for them. So I was into that. So I had this kind of ambivalent relationship with them. So as I mentioned in many podcasts before, I lived in Japan for a short time for a year and a half. And our mutual friend, uh, Mike, uh, Mike K basically lived there too. And I would go and hang out with him. He taught in a different part of, of the country and I would take the train and hang out with him and stuff. And one night I went to uh karaoke 
uh, with him and his friends. And I was drinking like tons of Japanese beer back then. And I got really wasted. It's, I think this is the most drunk I've ever been, which, you know, I no longer drink now. And there's a reason. And re- nights like this were the kind of the reason. Yeah. I mean, I was so drunk. I was like on another planet. And I got up and did this karaoke version of Sound of Silence. And I did it like Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols. So I was just like, the sound of silence. <laughs> you know, I was just screaming. And Japanese people in the in the bar were just like staring at me like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, they, no one was into it. No one thought it was cool. I was completely embarrassing myself. But of course, I thought I was amazing and funny and stuff because I was so drunk. And I got so drunk. I think I got alcohol poisoning that night. And I was sick at our friend Mike's house for like, he had to he had to keep me there for like three or four days. I was so sick. So I either caught the flu, I caught some bug or I got alcohol poisoning. There's no, and dude, his apartment was so gross. He had like cockroaches and shit. Nice. I mean, dude, cockroaches in Japan are just part of life. You know, they're just there and they're massive and, you know, you just have to deal with them. It's we're so lucky we don't have that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's probably why they had Godzilla. Um, Actually, that was because of Hiroshima and blah, blah, blah. We'll cover Godzilla at some point. Episode 3000 or something. Um, So anyway, I just want to circle back to Art Garfunkel because, you know, Art Garfunkel uh, was in Catch-22. He was in Carnal Knowledge, but he's also in this other movie called Bad Timing which is a film by the director, Nicholas Regg, who made Don't Look Now and uh, uh, Walkabout and these great art films. And he made this crazy fucking movie with Art Garfunkel called Bad Timing, where he's like in love with uh, Teresa Russell, who was actually his wife. And in, in a year, it's like a European setting. And it's this totally fucked up film about obsession. And Art Garfunkel is fucking amazing. Wow. It. Like he is so good in this movie. It's a crazy movie. It's kind of a cult film and it was really panned when it came out. People didn't really know what to make of it, but I watched it on Criterion later and I'm, I'm not sure what made me want to watch it. I think I was watching like Nicholas Reg movies at the time, you know, don't look now is this amazing, really scary as fuck horror movie. Um, and walkabouts this really good movie. And so I, I was really into kind of watching Criterion stuff. So I just, I just thought, Oh, this is our Garfunkel. I want to, I want to watch it. And he was fucking awesome. And he was at, and you can, and as we'll talk about, he's kind of a little crazy in my opinion. Um, and it really comes through in this film. So that's kind of the last thing I'll say, except for, as I mentioned, when I researched this, I listened to Robert Hilburn's book on Paul Simon, and I listened to a bunch of the music and the albums because I'd never really gotten to the album cut. So I think, as Jeff will also agree, we're kind of not going to play. We might play some of the big hits, but we're also going to kind of dive into some of the not so big hits and kind of go into those because I think some of the album stuff's actually interesting. It doesn't all work for me, um, but I was trying to get to the bottom of why people wanted them to reunite so much. You know, it's like Paul Simon was huge. I mean, just to say how huge he was, and we'll talk about this, 10 years after the Central Park concert with Simon and Garfunkel, he did a Central Park concert of his own. Just him, because by Graceland, he had become massive. I mean, he became became another level, but before that, he was always trying to live up to the legacy of like, uh, of the peak of his work with Garfunkel. And he never really... It, he he was quite popular. He had a ton of hits, but he never quite reached that that pinnacle. And I think with Graceland, he kind of reached that pinnacle, and he was able to carry that kind of concert on his own. But at the time, but still, even after that, people wanted him to reunite. And I kept kind of getting wanting to get to the bottom of why that was. 
you know, and I just found it super interesting and I found their weird bickery history just fascinating. Um, and this, you know, cause they were lifelong friends and enemies yeah. and it's crazy. So I just found this completely not boring. And I found I actually have a lot more respect for Paul Simon. I mean, I respected him to a certain degree, but now I really do have a lot more respect for him. So in the end, this was actually really cool. And, um, I did not expect it to be. I just thought this is such a, you know, why even bother with them? So many people talk about them, but now I'm kind of have a completely different opinion of their music and of their contribution. So it's clear I'm going to have to come up with a better punishment for the Donna Summer episode then. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I was even kind of like Meatballs, but Meatballs was fun to do just because I don't think it's that great. Um, But actually, sometimes stuff that's shitty is more fun to do. You know, stuff where we're just like, this sucks, like Fantasy Island, you know, like where it's like there's it's 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 bad, but in an extraordinary, crazy way. Yeah. Sometimes that's more fun than the stuff that's just kind of like, well, this is really good, yeah, you know, and that. we agree, blah, blah, blah. So right. any rate, let's go into uh, the history, I think. Or no, let's go into the zeitgeist. So zeitgeist, first of all, Jeff put something down that I completely disagreed with immediately. It's Bob Dylan thing. And we, we're going to come back to the whole, how big of an influence was Bob Dylan? I'm not arguing that he wasn't. I'm just saying, I think their primary influence was actually a different artist. Um, I think they're the, in, the, the thing that made, so, so the whole zeitgeist is folk rock, right? And so Bob Dylan is always going to be in there, right? He was the most influential artist of the 1960s, other than the Beatles, and maybe even as influential as the Beatles. In fact, he influenced them. Um, you know, he was just this major figure who just changed everything overnight. And then he even changed it more by creating folk rock, which was this whole genre that Simon and Garfunkel is really a part of. And this whole thing of folk, he kind of, I mean, folk was becoming popular before Bob Dylan was around, but once Bob Dylan got involved, he immediately shot to, as, to the top as the most respected folk artists around. Um, and once he started writing his own material, it was just like, he was the greatest songwriter who ever lived and all this. That's what people thought. And people outside of music were even influenced by him. I mean, it's so amazing to me looking back what a big figure he was. I mean, he's the only musician, uh, songwriter to ever win the Nobel prize for literature. You know, he's, he's this just huge figure. Um, but I would argue that their first and foremost influence that got them started was the Everly brothers. And they actually, the Everly brothers are actually on that central park concert. They brought them back. And what's funny is they, those brothers hated each other too. Yeah. Um, you know, they, 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 have, they wouldn't pl- sing together. You know, they would, they would, they actually had reunited for that central park concert to participate because they just hated each other so much, but this was a huge influence on the Everly Builders, the harmonies and stuff were a huge influence on the beach boys, the Beatles, everybody. Um, and they were a really big influence on, uh, Simon and Garfunkel and the earliest incarnation of Simon and Garfunkel was pretty much modeled on them, uh, which was called Tom and Jerry, which we'll get that, to. In the but I think, yeah, well, I'll get into my Bob Dylan I'll later. let you take Bob Dylan more, uh, yeah. but but as far as the other influence, I have to say, Paul Simon actually started out as kind of a Brill Building style songwriter, writing kind of pop songs for other artists and doing demos. And a, a, a person he actually worked with and knew was a songwriter named Carol Klein, who would later change her name to Carol King, and she would marry a guy named Jerry Goffin, and Goffin and King would write all these great hits. And I think Simon 
Paul Simon was influenced by that side of things too. In fact, the first song he ever was that really got him into music, as we'll talk about in the history, was actually a doo-wop song. So it wasn't folk music that was his first love. It was actually popular music and R&B and that kind of pop, you know, in the Everly Brothers. So that was their initial influence. But then, of course, as we get into the folk era, you know, they obviously, Paul Simon obviously saw an opportunity to write songs in that genre, and he was really influenced by Bob Dylan, especially, right? Yeah. So, Yeah, and, and, and that's where I... I don't disagree with the Everly Brothers at all. I mean, clearly their vocal stylings were, um, and, and the duet aspects were very much influenced there. But just on the, the Wednesday morning, uh, 3 a.m. album, all that really folky stuff, I think they were trying to, and I'll get more into this as we get into the evaluations, but they were trying to imitate something instead of come up with something on their own in those early days, mostly. And when they started actually, when Paul really started trying to find it and found his own voice. I think they just produce much higher quality things, which we'll, we'll get into um, a little bit later. So in terms of the history and background of, of uh, Simon and Garfunkel, um, Paul Simon was born in New Jersey, but moved to Queens, uh, New York uh, when he was a, you know, four year old. Uh, he was uh, wanted to be a, a baseball player, uh, probably like every kid who played stickball on the street at that time did. He was pretty decent, but uh, he's pretty short dude. He wasn't probably going to make it as a, a professional baseball player. Yeah, there's this story in Hilburn's book where he talks about looking at the baseball cards and he was, mo- you know, because baseball cards would have the player on the front and they would have like the stats, yeah. right? And the stat he was most interested in was height because he was like at the time when he was like a little kid, he was like five foot tall and he would only grow to be five foot three, really short, right? So he noticed that there were no players like Mickey Mantle and, you know, all these players were not five foot three. The, the shortest one he saw was like five foot six. So he kind of realized it's probably not likely that I'm going to be yeah. able to be a pro baseball player. Yeah, that's right. And he, uh, from the book that you uh, read, he heard, why don't you talk a little bit about this? Uh, Shaboom. Yeah. Shaboom by the chord. So this is a, a famous kind of doo-wop song, early doo-wop song. And he heard this and he was just blown away by it. Yeah. And he just decided he wanted to play music. At that point, right? Yep. And uh, so Simon and Garfunkel kind of grew up a couple blocks from each other. They had uh, were in the same school, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Paul Simon, I heard, told a story where he there's a like a candy and comic book shop that he'd go into, and Art Garfunkel would go in there. And the owner of the shop really didn't like Garfunkel because he'd go in there and like try to pick up different uh, cartons of Good and Plenty and shake them and listen to which was the one that had the most candy in it. Kicked him out one day, told Paul Simon the kid was a freak and weird and all that. Well, yeah, he would also conceal the boxes of uh, Good and Plenty as after. Yeah, <laughs> walk out, walk out, the, walk out yeah. with the shop. Yeah, so I, actually, I made I made that up. But. <laughs> <laughs> he, he probably could have. His hair will feature more prominently as we go along here. But anyway, yeah. they they met in like you know fifth or sixth grade and and started uh, you know playing together, singing together, hearing each other sing during musical productions and stuff like that, and eventually started playing as a duo inspired by the Everly Brothers, of course, as you mentioned, and uh, writing their own music and playing around at different parties and things like that. Um, when they uh, reached high school, you know, age of sixteen or so, they. Uh, went into uh, Manhattan uh, to record a song, which cost them $25 to do so, um, called Hey School Girl, which you can hear on YouTube. 
Uh, I wouldn't recommend necessarily uh, seeking that out, uh, but there it is if you're interested. And it caught the attention of a of a producer named uh, Sid Prosen, who had a small record label, uh, maybe ironically called Big Records, and uh, signed them and, and renamed them uh, Tom and Jerry. Um, you know, at the time, that was pretty common to, you know, have stage names, you know, even first names and all that. And uh, they released Hey Schoolgirl as a single, which um, I saw an interview with Simon and Garfunkel where they said, you know, it was cool because they were in high school. They had like a sort of a hit song around the area being high school kids. That didn't suck uh, for, for them, you know, amongst their friends and, and whatnot. Um, they were on American Bandstand to help promote the record. Uh, they were able to, uh, you know, kind of meet famous people like Jerry Lee Lewis. And um, again, just I'm sure it helped them with girls and, you know, being popular and all that and so forth. So did you want to add something here as well? Um, yeah, I mean, not really. OK, uh, OK, that's, a, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, they started they started this is, you know, they started having some. Uh, cracks in their relationship uh, when Paul uh, started to, uh, you know, as a songwriter, uh, you know, fledgling songwriter, wrote two solo uh, songs and recorded those um, and never told Garfunkel about it. They thought that they were, you know, this partnership and Paul went off and uh, recorded, um, you know, this to uh, these songs. And it caused a lot of friction in their relationship. And, and some have speculated that, it was sort of the start of, uh, you know, lifelong, career-long sort of um, bickering between the two, starting starting with that and had many other high and low points. Um, yeah, I think I do want to chime in on this yeah. because I think one theme is gonna, that's going to come up is that I, I think it's really more like art grudge phone call. <laughs> this guy holds a grudge like nobody else. He was still mad. He's probably still mad about this now. Yeah. And he's like 82, yeah. you know, it's like, he's still angry about this and they didn't speak together for like five years because of this. Um, yeah. And pa just to know, Paul, uh, Paul Simon used an alias for these solo songs. It was Jerry Landis. So he kept the Jerry name, <laughs> Jerry Landis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, he, he was sort of doing this on the down low even. Um, but again, as you said, Garfunkel was really butthurt about this. Um, and you know, saying stuff like, oh, well, friendship is should be full of, you know, involves candor and telling friends what's up. And the fact that it was hidden, uh, shocked and surprised him, all that kind of kind of stuff. They continued to, you know, play together even after the fallouts as, as Tom and Jerry, but they didn't really have much going on after that. And they called it quits and they sort of headed their separate ways. Garfunkel went off to college um, at Columbia, actually. Um, which he would return to several times um, throughout the, the 60s and, and beyond. Um, uh, Simon uh, was working for mu music publishing, uh, you know, as you mentioned, worked with Carol King, making demo records and things like that. At one point, I think this is after, uh, I'll get into this, after Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., he actually went to England. Um, after that album didn't do so great, uh, I think uh, in the opening clips, uh, Garfunkel was mentioning this. So um, anyway, Paul, uh, under the influence of, you know, Bob Dylan, as we were talking about another, started playing uh, folk gigs around 
Greenwich Village, wasn't getting much attention. He went to the UK um, and, you know, probably the novelty of an American over there singing folk music helped him get some notice. Started, you know, feeling pretty good, getting some confidence and returned back to the U.S. and hooked up uh, with Garfunkel again. Uh, they recorded individually. They recorded together. Uh, they released that first album. They recorded an album uh, which bombed and uh, that the debut album was Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. Came out in 1964. Um, later on, it would go on to a lot more success. It did have uh, The Sounds of Silence on it, which obviously is one of the great all-time songs. Yeah, the rest of the album is pretty much like typical, like political kind of, you know, folk about the civil rights movement and things like that. And it's not it's very underwhelming and it's very much just kind of generic yep. in that sense. And uh, there's just one standout, you know, and, and it's an incredible standout. One of the best songs Paul Simon would ever write, The Sound of Silence. Um, and we'll talk about this original acoustica version because I actually prefer I it do too, to the actually. electric one. Um, even though the electric one was really a, an important step for them in becoming popular. Um, but yeah, the and, and the thing is, is what's interesting, I'll talk about the way this was supposedly recorded because I don't understand it when you listen to it. And I'll I'll probably uh, talk about this one a little bit in my eval. But then one, one fun fact I found out was that the bass player on this session was... Um, Spike Lee's father, Billy. Oh, cool. Yeah, so he was a musician. He did some of the soundtracks for Spike Lee's movies later, but he was part of these sessions. Yep. So, the, the you know, this album bombed, and Paul Simon went back to England, uh, again, performing as a solo folk artist. Um, he, you know, had some success over there. He was on the BBC at various points, and he did something called the Paul Simon Songbook, uh, which he recorded... Um, uh, let's see, Sound of Silence, I think I Am a Rock. Um, April Comes, She Will was in that. And Kathy's song, which I'll be talking about later, which is named after a woman named Kathy Chitty. I'll get that right. Uh, who's a girlfriend <laughs> of his. The, I, she appears in a lot of songs, including America. Uh, Kathy, we, he talks about. So she played a big part in his writing at that time. I think they were together uh, for, for quite a while over there. Um, he, uh, I think it didn't do well, you know, I, I mean, I think it, no, no, it didn't sell any copies. That was what was weird. Cause he had been on this radio show on the BBC and there were all these people reacting to yeah. him. Like they were really into it, but the album itself didn't really sell any copies. It, I mean, the album, if you look at the cover, it's him and Kathy on the cover and they're kind of sitting on next to some water and it just looks like a piece of shit. Yeah. Like it just looks like a really like maybe it wasn't well promoted or something like that, but um, yeah, it just didn't really take off. So he decided to um, come back. Although during this time he did write a hit, which was uh, kind of harkened back to his Jerry Landis days, which was called Red Rubber Ball uh, with the with the band, uh, a member of this Australian band uh, called the New Seekers named Bruce Woodley. He, he would write a couple of songs with him. And this was actually a really big hit. It was a number two song for a band called The Circle. They're kind of a one, that's very 60s AM gold. And they were kind of a one hit wonder. But that's kind of like his old school style of writing. It wasn't, didn't really have anything to do with the new kinds of songs he was writing on the songbook. Yep. Anyway, um, some of that early stuff started to get some notice. A Sound of Silence uh, kind of went viral. Uh, Massachusetts uh, DJ started playing it. 
Um, there, yeah, I mean, we should say this is one of those songs, right? We we've talked about this several times on our podcast, right? We talked about "Light My Fire," how someone decided to play that, and it went viral, and they decided to release that as a single. And then we talked about "Smells Like Teen Spirit," right? Right. Even "Captain Jack" by Billy Joel, right? So that was another one where someone started playing the song like a DJ, and so this is kind of this era as we talked about on AM Gold and we talked about on many podcasts where DJs could kind of play what they wanted to. Yep. And they had some freedom. WKRP too, right? Right. So now right. someone will do something on TikTok or YouTube and it'll go viral and it'll become a hit, right? And then they'll, you'll get a like a one-hit wonder or a new artist that way. But in those old days, it was DJs who were the arbiters of this kind of taste. And they would, they would kind of find something they liked and play it. And this is like this obscure folk album that didn't sell anything. Um, didn't even crack the top 200 really. And then he just found the DJ found the song and it became like a huge college kind of one of the first college radio hits. That's right. Because it was like, uh, you know, a lot of people at Harvard and stuff are really into it. So that's kind of what happened. It, it was kind of one of those songs like we've talked about in many shows in the past. Yeah. Well, I mean, it started getting popular and, you know, strike while the iron's hot kind of thing. They, they kind of got back together and put together with their second album, the sounds of silence um, remixed that song, The Sound of Silence, adding the electric instruments and drums, uh, as you mentioned. Paul Simon really didn't like it, but, you know, success sort of made him like it more, I think, a little bit. Um, there's some other songs on that, re-recordings from that Paul Simon songbook thing we talked about, including Homeward Bound, another one of their classic hits, I Am A Rock. Um, and it became a pretty successful album, I think, eventually, right? It became, it was number 21. Yeah, three times platinum. Three times platinum, yeah. right? And then, of course, on the strength of this album, people started buying Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., and it eventually would go platinum. Yep. So, I mean, all of these were major hits. So Sound of Silence was number one. Uh, I Am A Rock was number three. And Homer Bound was number five. Even though the album was kind of thrown together from leftovers from the songbook, a lot of it, not all of it. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a math. They were they were huge. They were suddenly huge. Yep. And that's how it went. And they recorded their next album, Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Time, and uh, that came out October 66. That was number four, three times platinum. Uh, the single was A Dangling Conversation, which hit number 20. Uh, it was produced by Roy, Roy Haley, which they would work with a lot. Um, Hazy Shade of Winter was recorded uh, during these sessions, released as a single in 67, number 13. At the Zoo, Faking It were singles in 67. Uh, that hit on the charts at 16 and 23, respectively. Their next album, um, and we'll talk more about the songs on these albums in our evaluation, but the next album was, um, they worked on it called Book Bookends. Simon had some writer's block. Um, they were on TV a lot. And uh, while they were recording that, they participated in the famous Monterey Pop Festival uh, that uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, you know, made an album, Jimmy at Monterey, right? Uh, and Janis Joplin played there. Right. Um, and they were not, they were kind of seen as has-beens at this yeah. time because bookends was taking so long to do. I mean, three of the songs from bookends were already released in 67. The ones we mentioned, Faking It at the Zoo and Hazy Shade of Winter. And it was taking them forever. They were trying to do this kind of concept album. At least it's like one of these albums that's like half a concept album and half a bunch of tracks, kind of like Abbey Road. Right. Um, or 2112 is an example of that too by Rush. So, it, but it was like they were spending so much time in the studio. And like we said, he had writer's block that they were kind of moving out of the zeitgeist. They were like the biggest thing ever in 66 with um, 
those those two records, right? Parsley Sage and, and Sounds of Silence. But as 67 dragged on and they didn't have a follow-up, I didn't even remember that they played Monterey Pop because that's how little impact they had. Right. I mean, when you hear about Monterey Pop, you hear about you know, people like Janis Joplin playing with Big Brother and the Holding Company. You you think about Jimi Hendrix, you think about Otis Redding, you know, these performances that made a huge impact. And Simon and Garfunkel, I didn't even remember that they played it because they made so little impact at that time. And they seemed to be kind of passe at the time. But of course, what ended up happening, right? The Graduate, that changed everything. Yeah, so Mike Nichols is the director there, and he was uh, he wanted to use uh, original music, but he was using Simon and Garfunkel songs sort of as stand-in uh, for the pacing of scenes and, and movies uh, it, as he's developing and writing the movie. Um, they presented the original song Mrs. Robinson for it, uh, which, as we played at the beginning, pretty much won them the you know Grammy for Record of the Year. Um, you had some uh, fun facts about this song, stuff that you wanted to go over. Yeah. So it was originally called Mrs. Roosevelt and Paul Simon was like, wait, I need to change it. When Michael, Mike Nichols said, yeah, the character's name is Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. Cause it was written just by Paul Simon ran- kind of randomly. And then they assigned it to Mrs. Robinson. They changed the lyrics, but it's crazy that Paul Simon didn't originally want to change the title, which makes no sense yeah. um, because it's, you know, it has to be about the character in the film. Um, he also submitted Overs and Punky's Dilemma, which would appear on bookends. Um, and uh, Nichols just wasn't into them. He was already using uh, Scarborough Fair slash Canticle and April Come She Will and other songs like that, Sound of Silence. And so he just kept those. And then he added Mrs. Robinson and they released a soundtrack album for The Graduate. So which is like half of Simon and Garfunkel songs that are used in the film and then some instrumental music. Right. And this this album shot to number one. It became a phenomenon. The, mu- the movie became a phenomenon. It became like a cultural touchstone, a historical moment in time. Um, you know, it was super acclaimed. And then, of course, right on the tail end of that, they finished Bookend. So they had the number one album with The Graduate. And then the album that replaced that at number one was Bookend. So they just owned. So they were the opposite of Passe. They were the biggest thing ever. Um, it was just absolutely huge. Um, of course, um, Bookends was nominated for Grammy Album of the Year. And as Jeff mentioned, uh, Mrs. Robinson won Song of the Year and Record of the Year. I've, I, you know, looking at this, I, there's all these Record of the Year and Song of the Year. I don't get the difference. Yeah. What's the difference? Record is a song. So I don't know. I'd, I guess I'd have to do more research on that. But anyways, um, so they became really huge at this time. Um, and at, around this time, um, I guess you wanted to say some stuff about the rivalry. Yeah, I, I mean, they they were um, in general. Paul started getting very jealous. Again, another theme of Art Garfunkel in the performing context, because Art would often have you know some of the biggest songs, you know, that got the biggest audience reaction that he would sing, and he was the featured singer. And people really didn't um, necessarily know even that Paul wrote the songs and, you know, they assumed the guy singing it maybe was the uh, creative force behind the songs. And it, The taller guy. The t- That's what Paul always thought. Because yeah. remember, he had an issue with his height yeah. and he thought it was because Art was taller and maybe Art had more of a presence. They just assumed Art did, was the leader. Yeah. Yeah, he was even taller because he got at least three or four inches with that afro. That's right. You know, so it, talk about an imposing presence. Yeah. You know, and and 
he, I mean, the thing is, what's weird is like this whole thing about his voice. I mean, Paul Simon is a great singer too. Yeah. Like he's, he's really good. It's just Art Garfunkel's voice is fucking extraordinary. You know, it's just, there's really nothing. I mean, he's one of the, he's just got one of the most incredible tones. And, you know, we'll talk about how that's used on bridge, which is kind of his, the best thing Art Garfunkel ever did in his life. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think people, he had maybe had more stage presence and Simon was kind of the backing guy. It's almost like um, Penn and Teller, right? Yeah. Penn is the guy everybody thinks is the leader, but Teller's the one who does all the ideas, yeah. right? He's the genius and Penn is just the loudmouth spokesperson. So it's kind of the same thing. I mean, Penn on his own couldn't do all the magic tricks and complex magic they do. It's all Teller. So it's kind of the quiet guy in the background who's doing everything, but it's like, you know, obviously you have like Hall and Oates and, you know, you have uh, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely and those guys like I think with George Michael and Andrew Ridgely, I don't even know what Andrew Ridgely did. Nothing. You know, he kind of was Michael, actually. Yeah, he didn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, at least our article had this voice that gave him presence. And, yeah. you know, of course, their voice together was so appealing. Um, their voices together. So around this time. Uh, Garfunkel had been talking, Garfunkel and Simon had been talking with Nichols about being in his, in, in a, in a film that he made the, the catch 22, the version of Joseph Heller's really famous book. Um, and, um, they both originally had these parts in it, but Simon's part had been cut, right? They decided due to time to cut it. So Art Garfunkel went, uh, I don't know, remember where they filmed it. It was like in Africa or something. I think it was in it was he, Mexico. He went, That's what he was talking oh, about. Oh, Mexico. This is the only living boy in New York on that clip. I think that's what that was. Yeah, that's about yeah. him, right? You're, you're going to talk more about yeah. that thing song, I think. But yeah, he basically went, went filming. And so Paul Simon was just kind of writing songs and waiting for him to come back so they could follow up bookends. And that's what that song is about. And um, it's funny, right after that, Art Garfunkel had agreed to be in Carnal Knowledge, which is a much bigger part. You know, he's one of the main act, one of the main of the four actors who are in that film. Um, and he agreed to be in that without kind of telling Paul Simon. So this was something Paul Simon still probably is pissed about. Um, and he was kind of just waiting around for Garfunkel. So this created a lot of tension um, because of, you know, Garfunkel kind of putting acting above their music according to Paul Simon. Yeah. Well, and, and you heard in the opening clips, I, I think the Mexico one was the cardinal knowledge. Uh, maybe I, I don't have that clear. No, no, no. Mexico one was, 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 was catch 22. Catch 22. Yeah. They talked to it. Art Garfunkel talks about how bad the conditions uh, were. Right. And it was just really brutal and it took forever to film. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a brutal filmmaking experience. And that's why Paul Simon was surprised that he signed on for another one. Yeah because he was just talking about how miserable he was. But I think Art Garfunkel really just wanted something that was his and he wanted to be in the spotlight on his own because obviously Simon was writing these songs. Yep. And as we'll discover, the songs he was writing were, were kind of their peak. Um, I think uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, I think it's, you know, some people are bookends people. I think there's no doubt this is their best album in my mind. Um, it kind of has... Just the, um, I mean, obviously, Bookends has some amazing classics, but this has got Bridge Over Troubled Water, which may be Paul Simon's greatest song of all time. It's often on lists of greatest songs of all time, and it's uh, just a complete showcase for Art Garfunkel. I mean, the vocal performance. I didn't mention this in the history, but you know, after this, after we started researching this on Christmas, my mom had this whole 
broadcast of the Grammy tribute to Paul Simon. Did you watch any of this? I didn't, no. Okay. So what it is, is a bunch of artists covering his songs over the years. And, um, you know, it's got some pretty bad stuff like Brad Paisley. He's like a country guy who does like uh, Kodachrome. Yeah. You know, it's just like, you know, these country guys come out and they're, they talk and it's like, hi, I'm Brad Paisley. And all of a sudden they start singing and it's like, suddenly they get a Southern accent. Yeah. It's like, mama, don't take my Kodachrome. It's like, where did that come from? But anyways, actually, he's a pretty good guitarist. I was pretty surprised by his guitar playing. He did a duet with... Um, uh, Bonnie Raitt, whose voice sounds the fucking same. She's like 75 or something, and she sounds just as good as ever, even though I'm not a fan of hers, but I respected that. Yeah. But there were all these different, you know, even Dave Matthews came out, made me want to vomit, and did a bunch of stuff from Graceland. It was so insufferable. Yeah. But there were some good things on it. And one thing that was pretty good was Stevie Wonder, and God, it's going to kill me. I don't remember her name, the, uh, the new younger singer he did the duet with. They did Bridge Over Troubled Water. And it was really good, right? It was good because Stevie Wonder still can sing amazingly well. But I'm telling you, it doesn't even come close to the original. Yeah. Like anybody, like Aretha Franklin has done this song. A bunch of people have done this song. And I just don't think anything touches the original. Um, and, you know, obviously he wrote The Boxer, which is another landmark song. Maybe if during this Dale Bosio did it, you'd like it more. Well, yeah, Dale Bosio, man. And Terry Bosio doing the drums would just be... Yeah, that would be probably worse than Hello, I Love You, uh, <laughs> if that's possible. But anyway, but anyway, no, I mean, I just don't think anybody's touched his version. And this also caused conflicts, right? So they released this album. It's absolutely massive. It's their biggest seller by far. Um, you know, it's sold over 11 million records worldwide. It's, you know, a diamond seller, I think, all told. Um, you know, obviously the hits, uh, Bridge was number one in every country you could list. Um, you know, The Boxer was a huge hit, number seven. El Condor Pasa uh, was uh, number 18, Cecilia, number four. Um, it had a complete sweep of the Grammys. Like it won record of the year, album of the year, song of the year. Um, and it was absolutely huge. But one of the issues that was contentious here uh, that caused was kind of the final nail in the coffin was, you know, during the Grammys, Art came out and performed this song alone with only pianist, uh, you know, um, uh, wrecking crew pianist Larry Netchel accompanying him. And he, he did this great performance and he thanked Larry Netchel, but he didn't even say anything about Paul. Yeah. Even though Paul had written this song, the song would not exist without Paul Simon. He didn't say anything. And he did that again in another performance uh, very soon after that. They had this actual special too at the time, a, a controversial special where they got really political. And he didn't say anything about Paul Simon then either. And it was just kind of like, Paul was kind of like, what the fuck? You know, this guy, he's just trying to take the spotlight. You know, he does a great job on the song, but he's not really mentioning me. I'm not on stage. He doesn't call him up on stage or anything like that. And he would kind of do this kind of shit over the years. Um, so Paul Simon was kind of butthurt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And essentially, I think Paul just had enough at that point. He didn't want to fight anymore. He just said, yeah, I'm done. You know, he didn't really even tell Garfunkel that he was done. It just kind of quietly stopped recording, you know, stopped writing and just basically put out the word, I think, at some point after the fact that he was done recording with Garfunkel and was on his own. And that was in the, you know, 1970 uh, period. The, the 1970s, I, you know, I think they got back together and performed at like the uh, McGovern uh, presidential, you know, 
fundraiser or something like I that. I think it was like a fundraiser, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but for the most part in the 70s, they didn't really do much. They said nasty things about each other. They kind of, you know, had these like quiet ag- aggressions against each other or not so quiet or admitting talking. Well, they did. They did have one pretty major thing they did together, which was in 75. They reunited for one song. Oh, right. My Little Town, which I'll be covering later. Okay. And this was actually a pretty big hit. It was on uh, both of their albums at the time. So Art Garfunkel had a solo career. Most people, you know, we talked about Bright Eyes. He had some other songs that were actually popular. He was kind of popular in England. He had a few hits, but his albums are pretty bad. Like if you tried to listen to Breakaway or anything, it's kind of this soft rock without even being catchy. You know, it's just the he's he he basically doesn't even really stretch out his voice that much. Like Bright Eyes is probably the best thing he ever did alone. Yeah. Because at least he's really bellowing. He's really kind of using his voice, the vocal power. And with him, you want shit like Bridge Over Troubled Water. You want this epic shit for that voice. And Paul Simon could do that. He could write these epic songs that would just you know, tra- take that voice to its absolute peak. And it seemed like Garfunkel in his solo career wasn't doing that. And, and you know, and Paul Simon also, my so My Little Town came out in 75. It was recorded as part of uh, Still Crazy After All These Years, which would be a huge album for Paul Simon. Um, and that song was, was one of the singles and it hit number nine. And it was kind of a cool little reunion. But yeah, they didn't really do much else than that. You know, Art, Art kind of sort of pursued a solo career, sort of pursued an acting career. As we'll discuss as we go along in the history arts kind of a little lazy, I think. Yeah. He didn't really, he didn't really try that hard at stuff. I mean, I think bad timing is great, you know, but uh, he channels his inner uh, crazy fro guy. But, (laughs) you know, other than that, it doesn't seem like he really tried that hard. Paul Simon was really working the whole time. I mean, he became this really big, pretty big solo artist, you know, and he did all this groundbreaking stuff. He had um, what I consider probably to be the best fake reggae song ever, Mother Child and Reunion, which was actually played with real musicians in Jamaica, which is kind of why the music is so good. Um, And he had like these great songs like American Tune, which I think is up there with his best Simon and Garfunkel song. He had Kodachrome. He had these, uh, you know, he's nominated again for uh, best album of the year for, uh, uh, there goes Ryan and Simon, and then he won for Still Crazy after all these years, which is another massive album for him. You know, yeah. He was doing Saturday Night Live. He was doing. He did Amy Hall. He, you know, he was doing all kinds of stuff. But Garfunkel was really kind of low key and not really doing a lot in the seventies. Yes, and then the early the eighties came around, and uh, Paul Simon, you know, had. Been, I think it was solicited to him, or he, he, somebody came to him and said, "Hey, what about a concert in the park, um, in, in Central Park?" Uh, obviously, there's this constant pull, as we, we talked about before, for them to sort of reunite. People wanted to see them together. They decided to do this, um, you know, huge undertaking of producing this concert uh, in Central Park, which happened in September of 1981. A free concert they expected, I think you know, when they were planning it, like about 50,000 people. Well, you know what? The 10 times that actually were there, 500,000 people were estimated to have been there, which is insane. If you think how many people that that is, I mean, Central Park is big. It's not that big. I must've just like overwhelmed the entire area and it costs a lot of money. There's a lot of tax issues. There's a lot of funding issues. Paul Simon, even in the, um, you know, recording of it, make some jokes about um, how paying for it was a, a, a bit of a problem and 
having like uh, the guys selling joints in the park, donating half of their profits uh, to contribute to pay for all the police and fire and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, um, so anyway, um, they, they played this concert in the park. It was broadcast on HBO. Uh, they wanted to, um, y- you know, get through it thinking that it went pretty well. They, at, right at, at the time, they, they had some problems with the performance in that, one, they tried to introduce a new song. Paul Simon had a new song. And some, you know, stone idiot jumped up on the stage and tried to go and hug him or something like that, interrupted the song. That actually wasn't on the album, and it was, they cut it out of the broadcast and later put it back in or something like that. Um, Art Garfunkel had a solo song on there that I mentioned that's really not really worth mentioning. Uh, it's not a good song, in my opinion. But for the most part, they released this album They uh, in a year late or like six months, seven months later in February 1982. became a pretty big hit. Um, the set list as we are talking about is just, you know, covers the entire Simon and Garfunkel career. Um, also a lot of his, um, solo stuff. Um, they didn't think that, you know, I think they were originally like Art Garfunkel thought the performance was terrible. Um, and Simon didn't know what to think about it, but, the, uh, pe- the critical reception of both the live performance and the, um, various recordings were very uh, positive. They're very popular. They got a lot of good reviews. Um, I think Rolling Stone called it one of the finest performances of, of the year, um, you know, that captured what was the best of what they did, you know, in the, in the 60s and, and beyond. Um, you know, I think Garfunkel's voice uh, wasn't as strong as he had hoped, and that was noticed. But for the most part, I think uh, people really um, liked it. With the exception of uh, Mr. Robert Christigau, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Robert Christgau is interesting because he really likes some of Paul Simon's solo stuff a lot, but he kind of dismisses them. It's I think that's that rock critic attitude that Dave Marsh had, too, that was kind of a little dismissive of them. Yeah. Um, and he he called it like a uh, corporate boondoggle, you know, basically uh it, it was like a way for Warner Brothers, I guess, which was uh, Simon's current label to re-release uh, and resell the catalog that Columbia, because they were on Columbia Records as Simon and Garfunkel. So it was kind of like a, a ripoff. And then it just basically just said it was nostalgia, empty nostalgia. I mean, that's like a typical rock critic thing. But I think in general, the reception for this was this was a big deal, yeah. I think, to people. I think so. You know, it wasn't quite like a Beatles reunion, but it was probably the closest people were going to get to that because, you know, obviously the Beatles were never going to reunite after John Lennon was killed. Right. Um, But I think people wanted that reuniting of things. And it's something I'm going to talk about in my eval because I was, again, trying to figure out why do people care so much about Simon and Garfunkel as opposed to Paul Simon? Because to me, it's not that different. You know, it's really his songs and what is it it about them, you know? But this whole concert, they basically were together again and they were going to record an album together. You know, this was going to be like, we did this concert, we released the live concert, now we've got some momentum, let's do some new material. So Paul Simon was writing songs. You know, during this time, he was in a really crazy and volatile relationship with Carrie Fisher. He had left his first wife. We didn't really talk about their personal lives too much. He had this wife, Peggy, he met after Kathy Chitty. 
Um, and um, it was actually his manager's ex-wife. It was kind of weird. Um, or their manager's ex-wife. But he got together with her and he was married to her with to her for a long time. But then in the late 70s, he started having an affair with Carrie Fisher and eventually they would get married. And Carrie Fisher was a huge drug user. And she talks about this in her books and stuff about how she was bipolar. And so Paul Simon was having a really hard time with her. They would break up, get together again, break up, get together again. And he wrote a lot of these really personal songs that would come out eventually as Heart and Bones, which would be as uh, Hearts and Bones, which would be his follow-up to uh, One Trick Pony. And, uh, He just thought, you know, and they were working on these songs together and he just hated Garfunkel, what Garfunkel was doing with his harmonies and stuff. He just didn't feel it was right for the material and he felt the material was was too personal. And again, they were fighting a lot uh, because, yeah, they were just fighting. They were like an old married couple and they just decided to, you know, it just fell apart. And he eventually released Hearts and Bones and it really didn't do very well. I think now people look upon it as kind of an interesting album, but it was a total failure. Um, even more so, you know, he was kind of going downhill and he wasn't very prolific anyway. You know, he did like still crazy and then he had his greatest hits. And then he had one trick pony, you know, three albums in like five years, one of which was a hits album. And then he had four years later, hearts and bones. And this is when he went to South Africa and that whole story, you know, we'll look for it as episode 250 or 350 for us. If we're going to do it, um, Graceland you know, became massive and it actually became huge as huge as bridge over troubled water. Yeah. You know, it became like a diamond selling album, um, total phenomenon, totally critically acclaimed one album of the year. So he had, he is one of the few people in Grammy history to win album of the year three times. He shares that honor with Frank Sinatra, uh, Stevie wonder. And can you guess the other one? Hmm. Female. Let's see. No idea. Joni Mitchell. Fucking Taylor, Taylor Swift. Oh, fuck. Taylor Swift. And my guess is Taylor Swift will beat them all. Yeah. She'll well, probably win it like six times. Because she's like 20 years old or something. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, she's like 30. Anyway, so, and then of course in 91, you know, he did Rhythm of the Saints, which is another kind of world music album and was pretty successful. And then he did his own Central Park concert, right? Yep. And then in 93, they would get back together, right? They would, and not to great success they just started arguing immediately including they're trying to do some shows in new york and they were just fighting and yelling at each other and shoving each other and just it was just a nightmare that they just said paul i think just said i'm not doing this you know go fuck off uh to garfunkel you know so and, and then paul and then paul in the 90s did this weird musical called this it was called like cape man or adventures of cape man and it was about this Puerto Rican teen in the fifties who had murdered these people. And it was a, it's a true story. And it was all this Latin American shit, man. It's so bad. If you listen to that, the the music, it's like, he's like, he's like trying to be a cholo and shit in the music. (laughs) It's like so embarrassing. It's like, I think it's one of the worst things he ever did, but it had like Ruben Blades in there and stuff. Like it was a big Broadway musical and it flopped immediately. I think it, it it he kept it he kept it going with his own money and it was a huge disaster. And after that, I don't think his solo career was ever really the same. Although I will talk about some interesting later shit he did because he was always trying to do something new. And I admire his 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 wanting to do like a Broadway thing. I kind of admire him always pushing the envelope. It's kind of the opposite of fucking Garfunkel. Yeah, you know, never really did anything interesting. 
Um, and he just was a voice and he had this talent, but he never really did much. So in 2003, they finally did do a tour, yep. right? Uh, good friends, yeah. <laughs> which is ironic as hell, right? Yeah. Or is it old? So friends? I want to tell there was the good friends tour. No, it's good friends yeah. tour. Oh no, it's old friends, right? Yeah. Old friends tour. I think it's the old friends I tour. Actually, fuck it. We'll put it in our show notes or something, or maybe we don't care. But at any rate, they were old, not so good friends, I yeah. guess. Um, but I want to tell a story about this because this shows Art Garfunkel how fucking insane he yeah. is. I guess I feel bad for because Paul Simon can be an egomaniac and he could probably be a jerk and you know all this, but I really kind of side with him on a lot of yeah. this. Because listen to this story, dude. Okay, so they one of the shows they were playing, I think this might have been in 93 or it might have been earlier, or it might have been 2003. I don't remember. But one of the shows they were playing, they were doing the boxer, and Paul Simon messed up a line. And Art Garfunkel, it messed him up, and he got screwed up by that. And he was like, okay, whatever, right? And so then, like a year or two later, they're singing 59th Street Bridge song and Art Garfunkel messes up, right, a line, but he did it on purpose. Nice. And Paul Simon was like, what? And then uh, and Art Garfunkel's like, how, how did that feel, man? That sucked when 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 I messed up that line. You know, what'd you think? And, and um, Paul Simon's like, yeah, well, you messed up and, you know, it caused me to mess up. Not a big deal. It's just a mistake. And Art Garfunkel's like, no, I did that on purpose. <laughs> I wanted you to know what that felt like after you did that to oh, me with the box. God, what a gem. And Paul Simon had just done that accidentally. Yeah. So this is like, and he's probably still talking now. He's probably still telling his wife. Yeah, I remember in 58, man, he went on on his own. Yeah. It's like fucking 100 years ago. Yeah, I know, you're right? like a completely old man. It's like, you're not going to grow out of this. Uh, not really, yeah. as, we'll, as we'll continue here. So. Um, they tried to do another tour, you know, five or six years later, and Garfunkel ate some bad. <laughs> he ate some bad. Okay, he was in Nicaragua, and he ate this lobster. Like for some reason, he was choking on this lobster. He ate this lobster. It must have had some kind of parasite in it because his vocal cord was paralyzed. So one of his vocal cords was paralyzed. So he could hit like high notes and he could hit low notes. But when he tried to do that classic Garfunkel mid-range sound. Yeah. He couldn't do it. And he was singing. They were on this tour. They were playing in New Orleans. And he had, he kept fucking up and his voice kept fucking up. And he didn't tell Paul Simon why that was, that he was having trouble. He just said, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. You know, during like sound check, he was having trouble. And he said, I'm going to be fine. It's just a little thing. And Paul Simon was so pissed off about this that he didn't let him know. And Garfunkel was supposed to be taking, you know, Garfunkel had seen a vocal specialist and they said, oh, you got to do these exercises and you'll be able to rehabilitate your voice. It'll take months and months. He didn't want to derail the tour. So he kind of kept going on the tour. Eventually, Paul Simon just ended the tour early. They had to pay back millions of dollars that they owed for, uh, you know, obligations they had on the tour. And then Art Garfunkel never did the vocal practicing. Yeah. Because he's so fucking lazy. <laughs> Like, I mean, yeah. God, you know? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, listeners here, you get the idea, you know, beyond this time, it was all really they did is gripe at each other back and forth in the media about all of these transgressions, right? Uh, Garfunkel, even in 2013, 71 years old, still crying about, you know, the breakup and about how he couldn't run off and do a film without Paul being a crying little bitch about it. Paul's still screaming about how that wasn't fair, that he was off filming and wasn't going to return when they had music to make. Uh, you know, 
that kind of stuff. Um, you know, Paul talking, you know, talking about how art, you know, the, the vocal incident that you're talking about, Garfunkel complaining that, you know, he's gone for an extra month and, you know, Paul's going to write this gripey song about it, the only living boy in New York and, and things like that. They really, uh, you know, just kind of just gripe at each other through the media. In 2015, Garfunkel's still at it, basically saying, you know, why are you, you know, I still want to play with Paul. Well, Paul, why are you such an idiot? Um, we're, you know, so lucky to have this thing that we do together. Why are you messing this up? Started to talk about how, you know, Paul Simon has a Napoleon complex, uh, you know, and that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's funny. He says, I don't want to say anything anti-Paul Simon right before he says a bunch of yeah, anti-Paul Simon. Right. And then goes on to say, oh, yeah, we're good. You know, we're still good friends and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, then goes on to say that he has some, you know, simpatico with like, you know, George Harrison. Uh, you know, George came up to him at a party, allegedly, and said, Paul McCartney is what Paul is to you. My Paul is what your Paul is, that kind of thing. The same kind of uh, psychological effect. I, I do want to um, play uh, Paul talking about this very uh, same thing. A little clip here, just because I thought it was funny. You know, Paul kind of knew John Lennon a little bit. They both lived in New York, obviously, um, and spent some time together in the 70s um, and so forth. So here's a clip. Yeah, I'll tell you a, 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 a Lennon anecdote. Want a Lennon anecdote? Sure. Uh, we were talking about uh, partnerships. You know, he, this was maybe 1973 or something like that. And uh, I was having uh, dinner with him and Yoko, as a matter of fact. And uh, so we talked about how did, you know, get into early... How did you do your partnership? How did I... Uh, do my partnership, and he said uh, his partnership started. He uh, he heard from a friend. He had a band in Liverpool, and he heard from a friend that there was this other guy that had another band in Liverpool, and the other guy, of course, is uh, Paul McCartney. And uh, he he heard that th this band was as good as John's band. So John went over to look at this band to see, you know, just what you know to assess the danger level, you know? <laughs> Came over, he looked at the guy, he said, oh, this guy is very good. He said, he's, he's really good. He said, I better get him in my band. He said, wait a minute, can I control him? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. He said, and I always could because I was two years older. He said, and then we got to a certain point and the age didn't matter mm -hmm. and we couldn't. And I presume that's when they broke up. Yeah. Uh, now, Artie is one month younger than I am, so <laughs> I pretty much have him on. <laughs> uh, what do, what do we do? So obviously that's on David Letterman. And you can just get the idea of how they viewed one another, you know, and that, that lens. I thought that was an interesting clip, you know. Dude, you got to get a Disney trial and watch Get Back. Yeah, you got it. You got to watch it because that's this dynamic plays into yeah. that. And it's it's actually kind of different than I thought it would be. But that's I think what he's saying is true, that once Paul kind of became like the leader, which he kind of was more um, in the late 60s, it kind of makes sense. But yeah, I mean, it's also such a different kind of partnership, right? Because it's much more equal. Yeah. Right. Because they're both great. They're both like the best ever. And. 
But then you have Paul Simon, who's great and the best ever. And you have Art Garfunkel, who's, well, he can really sing. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, <laughs> well, and it's funny, the George Harrison comparison, too. Like, George Harrison is extremely talented in his own right, even if he felt marginalized by Paul or, or John at times. Um, yeah, he may, he might have made the best Beatles solo album ever. You know? Yeah, it's like, he, All Things Must Pass, pass right. is like a masterpiece. Yeah. You know, it kind of showed all the shit he had he had on the back burner. That's right. That he was he was world class too. You know. Yeah. Um, anyway, it, it goes on from there. It, like, uh, ba- basically, in 2016, Simon's just saying, "Look, we don't. There's not really much else to say. We've already done the big reunions. We're done. I'm not going to make music with him. We stopped in 1970. We don't get along. It wasn't fun. It's not fun. I'm not going to do something that's not fun." Uh, you know, if we go out and sing something that it's a good time, that's great, but it's not. And he's a pain in the ass. I'm not going to do that. It's never going to happen again. That's that, you know, Garfunkel basically saying in 2017 recently that, you know, it's like their relationships of marriage waxes and wanes every spring followed by a summer, cooler weather, warmer weather, and basically saying they're in a really cold winter right now. Uh, and it's probably saying essentially that, he may not hear from him again, and he doesn't really care kind of thing. So that's kind of where things are with uh, Simon and Garfunkel personal relationship, except that right now, as we're recording this in, in very early 2023, um, there is a show started in London, I believe, in, in last year in 2022, maybe before that, called The Simon and Garfunkel Story, which is roughly akin to the Carol King beautiful uh, Broadway show in, in that it's two actors playing um, Simon and Garfunkel, mostly just singing their their songs and a stage show with real musicians. Yeah, it's also like, do you remember in the late 70s, Beatlemania? Beatlemania was another example. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Kind of like yeah. that. Um, so a, a couple things just in thinking about this. Uh, so if you see clips of it, we'll, we'll post that on our Insta- Instagram if we're not traditionally lazy like we always are. Um, some examples of it, there's different casts in different parts of the world. This has been played out in dozens of countries all over the world. But the England one, um, I think it did start in London. The guy who plays Garfunkel has an uncanny resemblance to the real Garfunkel. And the guy who plays Paul doesn't really look like Paul, but he's shorter than Garfunkel. They got that dynamic right. They're dressed in the late 60s uh, kind of garb. But they sound pretty good playing those songs, again, with a real band and all that. And the idea that I had is how awesome would it be as a final fuck you to Garfunkel for Paul Simon to tour with the fake <laughs> Garfunkel? Yeah, you know, he on that on that Paul Simon Grammy tribute, he plays a couple songs at the very end. Yeah. And he gets on stage and my mom was like, oh, he looks so terrible. He's I guess he's had some weird he had some weird people think he has weird plastic surgery that he got like five years ago or something, yeah. which is weird for a really old guy to get. Who cares? Yeah. No one really cares how you look, dude. Um, maybe he was trying to look good for his younger wife, Edie Burkell, yeah, you know, maybe. um, but at any rate, he, he gets on stage and he sounded pretty good. Yeah. He did sound of silence and he did Graceland, the title cut. And so he could still do it. So he could pull this young guy in as a Garfunkel bot. How, how funny would that be? Is this like tour is Simon and fake Garfunkel. Just call it like fake Garfunkel. No one will care. No one's that, like if this if fake Garfunkel can sing pretty well, which apparently he can. You know, he's in this show. He's getting a lot of practice. Yeah, he's singing those songs. He's singing those songs. In order to sing them. Yeah. It's Paul Simon's song, so why not have fake Garfunkel? I, I think that would be like the ultimate fuck you to Garfunkel. And how awesome would that be? I'd laugh my ass off at that. Um, you know, and Paul, if you're listening to this, 
uh, you should seriously consider that while you still can, you're not getting any younger. The other thing that was, um, you know, uh, funny to me in thinking about this is the other person who's out there watching this is just like rubbing his hands together, none other than Gene Simmons, who's got to be thinking that there's a kiss story here that he can create with fake kiss guys to go off and just tour forever, because that's essentially what he wants to do. But we talked about that in episode one, like a blue man group. Well, he already has half of them. Exactly. Tommy Thaler and and, and those guys. And Eric Singer. And Eric Singer. So he just needs, they just need to cast a, you know, a Paul and and, uh, Paul Stanley and Gene, and they could do the same thing. I, I just don't understand why this hasn't happened other than the fact that People are pretty much fucking sick of Gene Simmons. It's funny. I was talking with my friend Bob, like uh, we went to visit Christmas at uh, Christmas and we were watching, you know, he has like Amazon music and we were like playing the uh, kiss alive when we were talking about it. And he, he was talking about our episode. He'd listened to yeah. it. And he was also saying, why wasn't there a Kissino in Vegas? Yeah. I'm like, dude, that's like the greatest idea I've ever heard of my life. Yeah, but yeah, it could do this. They could do this. It could do this. Like, and, I mean, and to, to me, this is where they're already to your point, kind of doing this. Half the band are, you know, scabs that you know they could just rotate in. And frankly, right now when they tour, they're playing uh, backing tracks anyway. So why not just, they're not really even singing or they're barely singing whatever it is. So like, why not just like cast some dudes that are younger um, and just call it like the kiss story or, or, you know, kissery or whatever other bullshit that they can recycle and just do this. This would be better than whatever they're farting out on stage and, you know, you know, Palm desert or wherever the fuck they're playing. And so Gene, you know, you're missing an opportunity here. Uh, you know, all these other shows are kind of showing the way. I think the difference is that, People actually have a warm feeling when they think about, you know, Carol King, certainly, and her history and her great songs. And, you know, even Simon and Garfunkel, for all the reasons we've been talking about, despite their personal animosities, people generally have a warm feeling towards their songs. I'm not sure that's true with Kiss, uh, by and large, but who knows? We will find out. So, all right. That extensive background sets up our uh, evaluation. So Slip, I will let you take it away here. Let's get into it. All right. So, you know, I, this is going to be a little unfocused. Normally I'm very organized here with the evaluations. I've got the bad and the good. I don't really have too much that bad. I'm more kind of exploring, you know, again, it was trying to answer the question of what's the big deal about Simon and Garfunkel as opposed to Paul Simon, right? So, you know, obviously it's kind of more of like, okay, let me, let me look at how I thought of them and let me look at how I think of them now and the stuff that kind of impressed me, uh, stuff that kind of, uh, maybe made me turn my, uh, kind of turn around on my opinion, you know, change my opinion a little bit about these guys. Um, now first, one of the things I was doing as I was listening to a lot of these albums, I listened to all of them pretty much in their entirety, Um, and I was kind of going, okay, what's the big deal about this? Is there, are there any, and I was looking for kind of tracks on the albums that weren't the ones you all know, right? right? Cause I, we didn't mention the album that everybody has, uh, Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits, the 1972 album. That's like even bigger than Bridge Over Trouble Water. It's like massive, right? It's like Hall and Oates' greatest hits better is bigger than any of their albums too, right? Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like one of those albums everybody had, right? It's kind of like Endless Summer in that way. You know, it it was released after their breakup and it was just huge. Um, 
but one thing I know, one thing I thought about was uh, when I listened to this was I was listening to Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. And I heard the version of Sound of Silence and I was really just struck by this song. And I was listening to it with headphones. And I think what's interesting is they talk about in the book, in Robert Hilburn's book, um, about how this was recorded with one mic and that was the secret. I don't think this was recorded with one mic because you can actually hear each one of them in, in each ear. And uh, so if you have headphones, you're, hopefully you're listening to this with headphones on your phone or whatever, you're going to hear this when we play this clip. Because I want to play a clip of Sound of Silence just to hear their voices and how they are on this. This is the original acoustic version, not the electric version. All right, here we go. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence Yeah, so that... um you know, it's, it's just the sound of their voices. Like, I just think that, you know, the, the electric version is the more well-known one. And I really like parts of it. I like how the drums just kick in yeah. and it kind of rocks a little bit. It's that folk rock thing. But I think it, in the, the mix with all the extra instrumentation interferes with the vocal tracks. And I think you can't hear their voices as much. And I think, if anything, why do people want to hear them together? It's because there's something about more than one person singing. There's something about those harmonies, right? right? What made the Beach Boys? What made the Beatles? A lot of that was the harmonies. Like or Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, one of the biggest bands of their day. Massive. Fle- Fleetwood Mac, we Be- talked about. Under Fleetwood Mac, yeah, right? Yeah. We talked about harmonies before. And I think there's just something special about more than one person singing together that just resonates with people. And I think these voices together just are magical on the song. And not to mention the lyrics. I mean, the lyrics of this song, I read them again and I'm just like, you know, these are really fucking badass lyrics. Yeah. You know, they're really good. You know, it's like they're pretty much perfect. And, um, you know, it doesn't sound corny to me. It sounds timeless. Yeah. And I also have to give props as a kid. And I always recognize this. I always love how this song influenced a song I like even more, which is called Spirit of the yeah. Radio by Rush. <laughs> the echoes with the sound of salesmen, you yeah. know, it's like that little play on. So obviously their influence was massive. Um, you know, it influenced Rush. I'm going to actually talk about the prog rock influence of them because that was something I discovered this time around. And I always kind of knew, but um, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think their voices together might be one of the main reasons that people resonate. And it's also just the songs, you know, they came at the right time. It's like timing is such a huge thing. And this song was just a phenomenon. You know, it's one of their greatest songs. Uh, Moving on. Okay. My favorite song though, by them of all time is a song they didn't even completely write. It's a traditional folk song, Scarborough Fair. And it's actually called Scarborough Fair slash Canticle, and it's used to great effect in The Graduate. And the reason it's a hybrid thing is because it's basically kind of a, I don't know if the word is a fugue or what the word musical word is, where there's two overlapping vocal parts. And the main vocal part of the traditional lyrics, right, um, which were also used by um, Bob Dylan. is, I think, what you're reaching for. A canon, okay. Canon. Yeah, so it's a canon. And and the... um, original lyrics are from a traditional folk song that Bob Dylan also references in his song, 
uh, girl from the North country, right? Uh, girl of the North country, I think it's called, right? So that was a huge folk traditional thing. But then there's this poem that Art Garfunkel wrote. That's so funny. I mean, I really always loved the lyrics, like especially the Scarlet Battalions and all the imagery. It was so proggy to me, right? But then I realized as I was looking at the lyrics now, it's kind of this anti-war it's very pretentious. It's like this anti-war poem. And it's funny because while researching this, I read Paul Simon's book, but I was really wanting to read something about Art Garfunkel and get his side of the story. But the only thing that's out there is this book of his kind of weird, random observations and poetry. And if you read the reviews, people are just like, you're, if you're wanting an autobiography, this isn't it. This is bullshit. It's just pretentious bullshit. And that's kind of what these lyrics are, but I don't care because I think it sounds so good. And I just love the atmosphere of this song. And I wish listening to this album, I wanted the whole album to sound like this. There is another song I think Jeff might play or at least reference called Cloudy yeah. that has this same vibe. And I wanted this album to have this whole vibe, but the album is kind of a hodgepodge. I really don't think they have a, a great, great album at all. And that's kind of a slight against them because I think even. Um, Bridge Over Troubled Water, which is probably their closest. Bridge Over Troubled Water and Bookends are their most cohesive records, but Bookends is like, it's got this cohesive concept, and then it's got a bunch of random shit that was left over that was recorded earlier at it at the end. And it really sounds like that. And it's also really short, right? All their albums are really short. They're like 30 minutes. And then this album has like weird kind of comedy in it, and it's got weird experimentation that doesn't work. Yeah, like the old um, people... Like conversation and shit oh the old people is on a oh, book that's right, right? That's right. on on parsley sage they have that seven o'clock news oh, yeah, silent yeah, yeah, night yeah, where yeah. it's silent singing night. silent yeah, yeah, night right. with a pretentious news broadcast yeah. i mean i kind of admire we'll be playing some of their weird experimental shit in a minute i admire their ambition it's just the beatles would do this and it would be coherent yeah. like they would do you know even revolution number nine as crazy as it is it ends in good night on the white album and it just works. Like it's just this huge, crazy experimental thing. And then it's this almost satiric ending with Ringo singing. I mean, it's like, it's so brilliant the way they put that shit together. And when Simon and Garfunkel try to do it, it's kind of a mess yeah. and it doesn't really work for me. Um, but even, even bridge over troubled water, which is like so front loaded, it's so stacked at the beginning, uh, just great. song, like 10, 10 out of 10 song, after 10 out of 10 song just perfect song and then you get to the end and they're just throwing shit like frank you know what are that frank lloyd yeah, wright song goodbye, who cares frank and lloyd then wright or whatever. good boy frank lloyd wright who cares and then you've got like a, a live version of bye bye love just thrown in it's like so weird because paul simon would actually overcome this in his solo career i think his albums are much more co more maybe garfunkel did that part and just lazied out at the end yeah yeah, I think this experimentation, some of it might have been his idea, because this song, I think, is more of a Garfunkel show yeah. than Simon. But man, I, I this atmosphere, and then it goes into Cloudy, and that's also great. Yeah. And then they just lose that. I, I agree. And I just yeah. wish they, you know, like our 59th Street Bridge song, which I've always fucking hated. Um, mm. That's like one of my shorts, for sure. On there, I just never liked it. The only good thing about it is it's like one and a half minutes long. Um I just hate that feeling groovy. Yeah. It just always looks <laughs> like it was on a chalkboard yeah. to me. But anyway, let's play a little bit of this amazing Scarborough Fair Cantec.
Yeah, I just love the weird tinkling bells and the atmosphere. It's very proggy to me. Um, it's Baroque is the word. It's very Baroque. Yeah. But it's like, it's it definitely influenced stuff I like, like Yes, uh, you know, and I'll talk more about Yes in a minute because they actually cover one of the songs. Um, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, you know, it kind of reminds me of David Crosby's writing, like Wooden Ships or Guinevere, these really atmosphere. I'm, I really love David Crosby's, some of his stuff, because it's so atmospheric and it's more concerned with atmosphere than with content, even though you have those those protest lyrics in there. It's like, it doesn't really matter. That's not really what you're focusing on. You're kind of focusing on the vibe. And I just wish they would have done more stuff like this. And I think I'm long on this kind of thing, but I'm short on their on their consistency and their ideas coming together as a coherent album. Yep. I just don't think they really have that. Um, so speaking of incoherence, they did do some songs like Mrs. Robinson and Hazy Shade of Winter that were more like direct pop songs. Um, kind of Paul's pop influence that he probably, uh, you know, created when he was Jerry Landis. But um, this song, man, Hazy Shade of Winter, this was released as a single in 67, was a pretty moderate hit. And then it was released as us uh, on side two of bookends. Um, let's listen to a little bit of this. Yeah, I love that. Um, probably one of my favorite songs by them. I do prefer the Bangles version, I have to yeah. admit, because it's more rocking. Um, actually, Susanna Hoffs played that on the um, tribute. She was all right. The thing about her is she looks like 20 years younger than she is because she's like in her 60s. It's crazy. She's like, uh, just doesn't age. But anyway, um, I really like their version more. And that was kind of how I came to know it because I didn't really even know about this song. I never heard it as a kid. I didn't have the greatest hits. So I know I, the songs I heard were like Mrs. Robinson and, you know, America and these kind of songs. I didn't hear this one until the Bengals did it. And then I was like, oh, this is Simon and Garfunkel. And then I listened to the original version, which I also really like. And I wish they would have, my one thing about this is I wish they would have done more of this kind of thing. I agree. Um, because I love Mrs. Robinson and this just almost are like rock. You know, they're, 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 and they're so catchy and kind of beatly sounding. I am a and rock I wish, is the I mean, same way, which I'll talk about too. Yeah, I am a rock is the same way, although it does have a little bit of that Dylan yeah. thing too. Yeah. Um, all right. Okay, so I don't have a clip of this, but I just wanted to shout out uh, a few more songs. Obviously, Mrs. Robinson I mentioned, which is just incredible. Um, you know, even Paul Simon was even invited later, uh, I guess, on uh, it was like some celebration for Joe DiMaggio at Yankee Stadium. I think when he died, yeah. uh, they had a big thing. And he said, you know, that line about Joe DiMaggio, right? Yeah where have you gone Joe DiMaggio and stuff uh, just great lyrics everything great uh, you know nothing bad to say about that America you know I I always thought this song was kind of cheesy when I was growing up but then I heard the version by Yes which is ironic because the Yes version is way more cheesy I was just gonna like say there's that. no yeah yeah it's super cheesy um 
it's super bombastic and over the top. It's almost like a music. It, it makes it more like the America in West Side Story. You know, it's very dramatized and stuff. But I, I got to say, I love Yes, and I like the version more. You know, it's the version that I came to love. And I and it really, I like the way the Yes version builds and slows down in key moments to dramatize it. And it really made me love those lyrics about, um, you know, the, ga- the man in the gabardine suit was a spy and his bow tie was really a camera. I just love those lyrics. I love the the whole, it's almost like a whole novel in a song. Yeah. And it's, it's just great. And, uh, you know, the Mrs. Wagner pies, that'll definitely be a clue on our, uh, probably one of the later clues on our clues for yeah. this because it was a real thing and you can find pictures of the old tin. They were these pies and tins that people would eat. Uh, and I think our, it's our just, listeners will get it. They're getting pretty good at our clues, but anyway, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. They'll get it. So it'll be a later yeah. one. We won't do like an obvious clue on this uh, to start. We'll try to get obscure. Um, but anyway, uh, again, a great song. Um, now this, uh, this song is part of bookends and it's kind of part of the bookend suite that begins a song. And I really don't like most of this. Um, I don't think it works. I don't like the song bookends and I'm not really into old friends or any of that, but there is one moment that made me laugh out loud. And that is this song called save the life of my child, which is the second part of the suite. I mean, listen to this fucking Moog shit on this song, man. It's so funny. I mean, it's just like, I, you know, I'm on the fence about it because I don't really think it works very well as a song, but I also love that they tried to do it. Yeah. It's kind of like that silent night thing. I kind of admire it more for the idea than the execution. Um, and I just really didn't enjoy this album very much. I, I really only like the big key hits on it and some of the album tracks I just didn't really enjoy. Um, and I think, uh, I actually kind of like Parsley Sage as much or more because of the highlights on it. I like more and I like the vibe when they get into that kind of moody vibe and the atmospheric vibe. I still think their next album is their best album by a long shot, just in terms of song for song. It just, I think it's better than bookends. Um, For one thing, it has the boxer, which I always hated as a kid because I hated the harmonica, but reading about it and listening to it again, I mean, for one thing, I think the lyrics are amazing on this song again. Uh, the whole lie to die die chorus is great. You know, it's epic. Um, and I really like the drums, they they the drum effect they did on this. They basically had um Hal Blaine, the legendary wrecking crew drummer, like with a snare drum and an elevator shaft to get that fucking echoing oh, wow. drum sound, which I really yeah. like. It's really cool. There's some really cool production choices on this album. Obviously, the elephant in the room is the title cut, Bridge Over Troubled Water, a kind of gospel song that Paul wrote. Um, interesting fact is uh, the, the sale on Silver Girl uh, verse was added later because he felt like he needed another verse. And there was always a rumor that this was like about heroin somehow, mm. like a needle. But it was actually about his wife at the time, Peggy. Um, and uh, 
yeah, I mean, the, the vocals, the piano, the way it's produced, everything is pretty much spot on with this. I can't really say anything negative about it. I kind of am burnt out on it, I would say. Me too. Yeah. But, but it's one of those songs where it kind of, everything comes together. And it's kind of hard to argue that this isn't his masterpiece. I mean, there's a, he has a few, right? And uh, this is definitely the one I think most people point to. And it had such an impact at the time. And I think it still resonates now as a, I think the problem with it is that no one else can do it justice. And I think even you get the greatest singers of all time. I just think there's something about art's voice on this that is just, I mean, we've dissed Garfunkel a lot, but I will say, uh, you know, this is his shining moment. This is his greatest achievement and it's all him singing and it's really incredible. Right. Um, I'll even say something about El Condor Pasa, not one of my favorite songs, but I do have to point out its influence. Um, it, it actually is interesting because it's the music was recorded by a different band called Los Incas. They were a traditional, uh, South American music band and Paul just took the music and he put his lyrics and singing over it. But again, this is one of the first, um, forays into world music ever. I think, uh, ever done. And I think you have to give credit for that because, you know, the incorporation of world music that people like Kate Bush and, you know, Peter Gabriel and, uh, you know, uh, Sting and these other people, um, would do, you know, it all came from him. I think he was like one of the groundbreaking people to do this. Um, and this song is really important for that. It's kind of the first one. And, uh, you know, so, so, Again, for for Simon and Garfunkel, I will say that I think one of the important things about them is one, the two voices together, two, just the 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 songs just hitting at the right time, right? Because Paul Simon would continue to write great songs. I think American Tune, if it would was done by uh, Simon and Garfunkel, even though the melody is borrowed from like a traditional melody, um, I think American Tune would be much more recognized as the masterpiece if it had been done by them. I think just at the, the song, the timing of these songs, like the fact that they went down in 67 and they came right back with the graduate, just them just hitting the zeitgeist at the right time. And then of course them, just their image, like it's just the two guys together, Paul Simon with the guitar and Art Garfunkel with this giant fro, you know, standing there on stage. It's just kind of iconic. And that's, I think why they have the Simon and Garfunkel story to repeat that. So I think, um, and I think what's interesting is I think this next clip I'm going to play, I don't think this is like a that great of a song, but I think it's funny because if you listen to the album, I, I tried to listen to Breakaway, Garfunkel's 1975 solo album. I couldn't really get through it, but I listened to all of Still Crazy after all these years. Um, and I will say it's a pretty fucking boring album. You know, it's very soft rock, very middle of the road. I don't think the song quality is as good as uh, There Goes Rhyme and Simon or his debut. Um, both of which, you know, are pretty decent records and they have their moments. But um, I think the the album is kind of sleepy, except for 50 Ways, which is the standout track on the whole album and my favorite song on the album. But the album really comes alive on this song when they're singing together. This is My Little Town. So this is their reunion that they did in 75. That my I mentioned little before. town I never meant nothing I was just my father's son Saving my money, dreaming of glory, 
so that's a bit of am gold yeah um from uh, simon garfunkel and i just again it's one of those more energetic songs that i wish they would have done more like uh hazy shade of winter and mrs robinson it's kind of a you know 70s pop song and i just their voices together if you listen to the rest of the album and you listen to this it's almost like someone woke up you know it's like it's just got so much energy and the voices sound so good on that you know nothing but the dead and dying in my little town it's also kind of ironic because it's such a happy song about such an unhappy subject but i really wanted to highlight that because it showed even after all those years that they just sounded amazing together and i think that's one of the reasons people just wanted them to be together maybe it also is a baby boomer thing uh because people are nostalgic for that time and they are just so it's why we talked about with donna summer but maybe even an order of magnitude above that um just because they're much more legendary than her um it's they're so inextricably linked with those times in the 60s that it's kind of a nostalgic thing for people and they and they could get back together the beatles if they had gotten back together it probably would have been extremely disappointing but massive anyway um so it it's unless uh, they did a weekend at bernie's thing with john lennon which would have been important oh yeah taste right yeah totally uh yeah that that would have been probably yeah that maybe maybe the will cryogenically raise the Beatles again in the future. That's a that's a good plot for an, a sci-fi novel, yeah. you know. Anyway, um, so just wrapping up, I wanted to talk about you know, I I actually was reading Paul Simon's book, so I listened to a lot of his solo stuff too, and I just want to say one thing I admired about him is you know I mentioned that Cape Man thing and what a fiasco it was, but I admire him for pushing the envelope, and he made this album in 2016. It's his last album of original material. He came out with a, another album that's basically him recovering songs from his older albums. And this album's called Stranger to Stranger. And I would recommend anybody listen to it. I can link to it on YouTube or whatever, particularly the song called The Werewolf. Because it's like Paul Simon doing fucking Captain Beefheart. It's like the weirdest fucking album I've ever heard. It's so original. It's He was um, influenced by this uh, avant-garde composer of the early 20th century named... Um, uh, Harry Parch, I think that's his name. Um, and he would invent his own musical instruments. And he believed in this tone scale that was bigger than, you know, had more notes in it, essentially, and more more rhythm. And he invented these instruments that would do that, and he would compose and play music on them. And Paul Simon had acquired a couple of these instruments and used them on this record. And it is fucking awesome. Like, this album is so awesome. It's not that much of a pleasure to listen to. It's not like the songs are catchy, but I just admire this 75 year old dude still trying to find new sounds. I mean, that's where Graceland came from, right? right? That's where El Condor Paso came from. He was constantly searching for these new sounds, constantly trying to experiment. And even though a lot of their experimentation, as I mentioned, wasn't successful, I kind of got to admire this about them. And I think this is also a strike in their favor. So overall, I really... I really turned around on this. I was kind of going to go short and say this was just dated stuff, but obviously with the Simon and Garfunkel story and the songs continuing to have an appeal and stuff, I got to go long. I mean, they're really, you know, the the best moments of this group are really good. Um, and, you know, are they one of my favorite bands of all time? No, but some of the songs are probably among my favorite songs. And I just empirically, I just happen to acknowledge how good they are. So. Um, as for Garfunkel, well, you know, he'll always be remembered for that one song. I don't think he has much more to offer than that. And obviously they're really old, you know, and Garfunkel's voice is probably just beyond shredded. Paul can still kind of play, but I think he's 
you know, probably doesn't have that many years left. You know, he's very, he's not like Paul McCartney or Mick Jagger who are insanely, uh, I mean, physically fit for their age. Yeah. I mean, Paul is still go play a three hour show. I mean, he's like 80 years old. It's crazy. And um, Mick Jagger is still running around on stages. It's, it's unbelievable. And he's close to 80. So it's, it's just weird, but Paul, you know, he looks tired Paul Simon, um, on yeah. this, on this thing. Yeah. yeah. Paul Simon, not Paul McCartney. Right. So that's my, that's the end of my spiel. Okay. So let, so let me get into it here. I, you know, we mentioned Bob Dylan's influence um, at, for everybody at that time, and especially um, Simon and Garfunkel. I agree with you about the Everly Brothers in their harmonies and sound. They were hugely influential to everybody who came after that, including, by the way, Fleetwood Mac. We talked about uh, Buckingham Knicks copied them a lot, even directly mm-hmm. acknowledged that. Their early album, uh, Wednesday, thir- Wednesday Morning 3 a.m., was hugely influenced by Dylan. I'm not a fan of it for the most part. And I also think in addition to uh, the Bob Dylan influence, which we'll get into at some point, because I think you and I will differ a lot about some Bob Dylan stuff in our evaluation, but the um, like the song Blessed sounds like the birds to me, like Crossed with Dylan, Most Peculiar Man, same kind of deal. Um, I think Paul Simon, you know, in some of his writings, he clearly has had some depression issues because some of the songs are bummers. Um, on a later album, Richard Corey, sort of like that too. Well, Richard Corey is actually just a poet, a famous poem. I know, but his, his choice of yeah. topics is sort of a downer in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of, I didn't really talk about how fucking pretentious they could be too. in my eval. That's one strike against them and the, them doing Richard Corey is like the, it's just so precious. 60, I know. Early 60 I know. It's like folk. It's so it's stomach like coffee, churning to me. Coffee house, you know, small college town in the East right. Coast kind of thing. Um, a lot of we didn't talk about this, but the Vietnam era and the era politics were a huge part of the, this. These songs, obviously, Cold War related stuff. Uh, the song "He Was My Brother," uh, Peggy O. The sun is burning. It's about nuclear war. He was my brother is like civil rights. Civil rights. It's like, it's about a black African-American, right? But I think they changed the words a little bit too to reflect people coming back from the Vietnam War. Oh, yeah. okay. So Maybe I messed that up. But I know there were, it, it was like, yeah, they were political yeah. because it almost seemed like they were political because they were supposed to be. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it, it. that's why that first album is just so weak. You know, it's like, it. it's except for one song, right? right? Except for one glaring exception. Um, yeah. Sound of silence, right? So, um, Bleecker Street is okay. Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. There's a couple of Paul Simon songs I want to point out where he talks about, and this is one of them, I forget, Bleecker Street might be the other one. It might be on a different album, I forget, but he's talking about watching some girl sleep and watching her uh, chest rise and fall. And then talking about running off and robbing a liquor store afterwards, there's like three, two or three songs where it has the same thing in it. I don't know. There's some like weird obsession he had with like robbing liquor stores. Um, And maybe that was like the crime of the time that he was just uh, reflecting. Anyway, this album, if if this is the only album, no wonder it didn't do that well originally. Um, Not that great. Um, We get into some of their other albums and and it starts to get more interesting, right? Uh, The second album they had, Sounds of Silence, we talked about that. I want to play one of my favorite songs from that album and I will talk about it afterwards. So here it is. And so you see I have come to doubt 
Okay, I mean, you can't deny this is a Bob Dylan-esque song to the hilt. Uh, yeah, it bears a passing resemblance to like stuff like Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Yeah. You know, that kind of love song. But it's it's got its own melodic sense, too. I mean, the, you know, the whole, I guess the whole structure of it is very Dylan-y. Yeah. I love this song, though. I love his singing on it. It's Paul singing, obviously. Um, I, I like the lyrics even, too, a lot. Um, it's just his has always been one of my favorite songs. Um, if you look at people on the internet talking about it, there's this kind of cult following around this song. People, a lot of people really like it. I would, I guess, count myself as part, as part of that. This could be my uh, one of my very, very favorite uh, songs of Paul Simon. Um, another song on this album is I Am a Rock. Uh, I'll play a little bit of that. I think um, he, to me, at least, he finally excreted that Dylan casserole he dined on for a lot of years, <laughs> uh, but retained some of the nutrition. I like this song a lot. I like the lyrics a lot. I always have. Uh, some people yeah, don't. Yeah, it's great. But... It is very, I think it's very Dylan. Yeah. It's got, it's got like um, the, the whole organ and the production. I mean, obviously, a lot of these same musicians played on stuff in the 60s. So you have the same, you know, it's probably a lot of Wrecking Crew people and other people that Dylan played with. Yeah. But it's it is uh, I think it sounds a lot like Dylan's kind of folk rock period, which is right around this time, yeah. and which everybody was blown away by. But yeah, still, this is one of the hits, right? People remember this. Yeah, and I I actually love the lyrics of this song quite a bit. Um, other songs on this album I like. I'm not going to play, but April comes, she will. Very famous song. I also, also used in the graduate. Also used in the graduate. Somewhere they can't find me. I like um, and. We got a groovy thing going is a really goofy song, but for whatever reason, I always liked it. I can't really defend that. I don't think it's a great song. Um, any song that uses groovy, and you mentioned the 59 uh, Street Bridge song, not being a favorite of yours, also feeling groovy. I'm not really certain anything that uses the word groovy is ever going to hold up in a long sort of way, but um, I kind of like this song, I just got to say. Um, another song, uh, so moving on to Parsley Sage, 66. Um, I want to play a, a song called uh, For Emily, Wherever I May Find Her. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so the lyrics are a little florid and usually not my bag. This is Art Garfunkel singing. This is probably my favorite Simon and Garfunkel song. I fucking love this song. I always have. Um, I don't know why particularly other than just kind of strikes me and it's just, I just fucking love this song. Um, I've heard Paul Simon sing this song too in various places and he does a, a good job of it. Very different song. I think Garfunkel singing this sort of makes this song. It's like right in his wheelhouse um, yeah, it's kind of like that same vibe as Cloudy and Scarborough Fair. Yeah, it's yeah. like, I, I even listening to this, I'm just like, yeah, this is one of those songs where I think if this whole album had this same vibe, it would be their masterpiece. I agree. Because it's got, it just sets this kind of mood. It's almost like Nick Drake or something like this kind of melancholy mood. Yeah. And it's got a vibe to it. And, and you know, to me, I like albums that have a mood to them that have a consistent tone and, and they kind of take you to a place and their albums are so such a mixed bag because they throw in this bullshit, which we'll talk about in a moment. Cause I see you've highlighted one in particular. Yeah. Um, and even 59th street bridge song is on this and it just doesn't kill this the mood. melancholy yeah. vibe. Yeah. And this is a really great one. And, uh, you know, listening to this too, with Art Garfunkel's voice and the way he just controls it, I'm just like, Man, if I could go back to 1970, I could be like, you know, yeah, do carnal knowledge, but we're going to get you as a lead singer of the of a prog band. Yeah, because he would be awesome because he has the vocal power. He's got the range and he could he could have just been like another. Yes, I was just going to say he could have been in, like in. Yes. Can you imagine? He had the hair, you know, it could have been. That's true. He they could you, you know, you get some weird kind of cool, uh, you know, he could wear a cape and stuff yeah. and be like super Afro's vocal man, yeah. you know, It'd be awesome. He, I totally wish he would have done something more interesting and hooked up with another songwriter, yeah. you know, another, someone else who could write songs. Obviously he could not. Yep. So if he would have hooked up with somebody who had some taste or someone who was willing to go like, Hey, you know, let's take your voice in a whole different direction here. They would have been cool. I agree. Or maybe he could have done a moody, atmospheric kind of Nick Drake uh, style folk album in the early 70s and had some kind of cult classic, you know? I don't know. It's kind of a disappointing that that voice never really went anywhere after, you know, because Paul Simon obviously went went to other places and did other things and still continued to make interesting music through his whole life. But art just was stuck in this past. You know, with his, it's sad. With his uh, grudges, right? So, um, this you mentioned. Yeah. We mentioned Cloudy several times. Is on that album, also great. Homeward Bound is on this album, also great, also great. Um, yeah, 59th Street Bridge song we mentioned, feeling groovy. Um, I don't know. When I was a kid, I kind of liked it. You know, well, it's super catchy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was a it was a hit. Yeah. It's a hit, but it's just I just don't like the feeling groovy. All thing. right, now I'm going to talk about the giant shit in the middle of the room of this album, and it's called the simple delicatory philippic. 
Philip, however you say that. Philip, 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 God, so pretentious. Or how I was McNamara, which is just, it's supposed to be kind of a parody, I think, of a Bob Dylan type thing. It's a, it's complete garbage. It, it wrecks the mood of the album. It's not a good song. It should have been like, they should have like shaking their heads and said, let's just put this in the trash bin. Every time I hear it, I skip it. I listened to it a few times in preparation for this, and I hate it even more. Um, I can't say enough bad things about it. It's really one of the worst songs ever written. Yeah, it's it's a parody of Subterranean yeah. Homesick Blues where it's kind of naming shit and kind of making fun of Bob Dylan for that song. Um, yeah, it's not a very, you know, just as music, it doesn't really work. It's just a complete kind of Weird Al style parody. Yeah, it's a style It's parody. like a style parody. Yeah. 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 I don't think it works. Uh, bookends. So I want to I wanna play a, a song off bookends that many people probably uh, don't know that well. We talked about it before because Paul submitted it for the graduate and it was rejected by Mike Nichols, but I want to, I want to play a little bit here. Wish I was an English muffin About to make the most out of a toaster I'd ease myself down Coming up brown I'm a citizen for boys and very Okay, so I kind of like the song, the harmonies, the voices on that. Uh, the, the lyrics are a little amusing uh, to me, and I, I do laugh at a particular line like Beavis and Butthead. I don't know if I need to go into it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only funny thing. I can't, I really don't like this song at all. I agree with Mike Nichols. Yeah, I, I just too, it's kind of just this one of these little cute 60s things yeah, that I agree. I just don't, I just, it just doesn't do it for me. I, I kind of like the music. The lyrics are are very, very questionable. Um, yeah. So other songs on this album of bookends, faking it. I kind of like old friends. You don't like. I think it's okay. We played it a little bit at the beginning. At the zoo is another one of these songs. It's kind of goofy lyrics. Um, I I kind of like the music. The lyrics I'm not so high on at all. Um, you already played ha- Hazy Shade of Winter off of this album, um, which is a is a great song, and I agree with you 100. percent that um, if they'd only made more songs like that. Um, Bridge Over over Troubled Water, we talked about a little bit, um, quite a bit, in fact, on their, um, you know, the history and it being kind of like one of their greatest songs, certainly Art Garfunkel's highlight. I do want to play another song off that album that we played a little bit of before we talked about, but I want to play more of it. Get your plane right on time I know your part will go fine Fly down to Mexico I need on the weather report Oh, I can gather all the news I need on the weather report 
Uh, this is one of my favorite Paul Simon songs too. I love it. Yeah, it's another good one. It has a lot of, uh, to me, like Beach Boys influence too. You know, I hear in there, it's not overly Beach Boys influence, but a little bit of that. And like, uh, it, this was written because Paul was angry that, uh, you know, Art was down filming the movies in Mexico and where are you, dude? We're supposed to be making this album kind of thing. You know, not letting Art have his, his you know, 10 seconds in the sun maybe. But I do love this song. I, I think it's one of the best on on this album with uh, obviously the title track of Bridge and Hazy Shade and, and some of the others we mentioned. All right, so I'm going to take on the slip roll and give you the, the kind of good and bad breakdown for my evaluation. So the good, Paul Simon's songwriting is obviously up there with the greatest ever for pop songwriting. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, he has so many great songs in, in, the, in the dozens. It's hard to argue with that. Um, Art Garfunkel's hair at their peak is just, it's a highlight. I just don't know what else to say. It's just amazing. <laughs> and it just, the visage of him standing there with that giant red fro just makes me smile. Um, even though he's kind of a sourpuss, um, the best songs are among the best, among the best pop songs ever written. I don't think there's any question about that. I also do secretly or not so secretly like the soap opera, how much they hate each other. Um, I don't know why that's so amusing to me. Um, but, it, but it is, um, the bad, a lot of it, a lot of the, especially the early stuff is pretty sappy and dated folk, which I'm not a fan of at all. Um, we talked a little bit about this limited in the kind of range and ambition, right? They had like half great albums, half garbage, not any like single singular, great sort of end to end albums. They got lazy at the end or had like, you know, six out songs that were good and four that were horrible. Um, I think some of the things, their, their topics are a little bit repetitive and maudlin, lyrics and themes. It's kind of the same stuff again and again. Um, you know, I, and I think that they have a somewhat limited uh, together oeuvre, right, in the sense that there's just not that much. They had, you know, uh, what, five albums and half of them were remakes of prior yeah. things and, and, and things like that. So um, overall... My evaluation, I want to say separating out Paul Simon from Simon and Garfunkel was hard for me because I conflate them so much. I do want to play a quick uh, clip here of uh, Paul Simon talking about his music and legacy. So here's a clip. Your music has uh, become, uh, it's everywhere, omnipresent. And then, and it's in elevators, it's in Now how do you markets. react when you hear it in an elevator and it's done it by the uh, Milwaukee Strings or somebody? What? Uh, <laughs> I like it in the elevator. I really do. I'm not being facetious. I like to hear it there. The most fun of hearing your music is when you're walking down the street and you hear somebody hum it walking in the yeah. opposite direction. Yeah. That's a tremendous thrill. It's, it's actually a privilege, you know, to be, to be in a position where people like what you do and accept what you do uh, to, such, to that degree. It's, it's, pri it's a privilege. So, you know, Paul, can you, uh, he's talking about his own music and hearing it at all these places. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, on the quality of the best songs, I'm extremely long. I mean, they've already stood the test of time. They continue to be appreciated in all forms, including in elevators, including by people walking down the street. Um, it's been parodied widely, of course, in various ways, which is also, you know, in its favor as being important. Um, they use Sound of Silence, uh, obviously, on Arrested Development for, uh, you know, Job's sort of, you know, realization that something has gone wrong, right, you right, know, which is too funny. Right. 
Mrs. Robinson as a euphemism has obviously, you know, it's not just their song. It's the movie too, but um, it's, it's like, you know, riddled and, and uh, throughout uh, our culture. There's no reason this won't continue. The songs are going to be covered by many people for generations, in my opinion. So uh, I'm extremely long on that. On the rendition of these songs by Simon and Garfunkel as an entity, yeah, I'm slightly long. I'm not quite as long. There's certainly, we talked about this, something about the two of them singing together that people feel uh, find compelling, have always found compelling, will continue to find compelling. The Simon and Garfunkel story, the Broadway show, is just another example of that. The constant reunion talk over the years is an example of that. And certainly listening to the best of their stuff, you get the understanding of why that is. But I'm a little less long on them together, certainly much longer on Paul and the songwriting that will endure probably, you know, forever, you know, different people will cover elements of his song. So, so there you go. That's where I come down. I'm long and then longer, I guess, on, on those two uh, facets. All right. Okay, cool. So uh, that's episode uh, 29. I guess we could say we're both long on Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. I I think we're supremely long on Art Garfunkel's hair. I think there's no question about that. (laughs) Um, so, and unfortunately for him in recent years, he's, uh, you know, lost most of it. So he, he doesn't have that huge Afro anymore on the top, but maybe on the sides, he could do that, um, you know, kingpin sort of come over thing, but it just, it doesn't have the same effect, unfortunately. So, all right, everyone, that's episode 29. We'll catch you next time. This is Jeff. That's Slip. All right. Signing off. (laughs) 